I'm really happy for you. I'm let you finish. Hello and welcome to On In 5. I'm Anton Ryder. I'm your host for the evening. Thank you for joining us on this wild ride. I'm here with my friend, Ethan Bonin. Hey, Tony. How are you doing today? Man, I'm really good. I've uh, enjoyed a couple, a nice pumpkin beer. Now I'm drinking an IPA and hanging out with two of my good friends. So what else could you want in the world? How are you? I'm great. I've been just killing little kids on Call of Duty Mobile on my PC all day. It's been a pretty good day. Wow. I feel a, bad. What a guy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And then on the other side of my screen is Austin Thomas. Hey, man. Yellow. How are you doing? <laughs> Woo. Are you asking me or the listener? Hmm. Whoever wants to listen. Whoever wants to answer. <laughs> wow. Well, the listener is doing pretty Whoever poorly. is willing to answer right now. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I heard the listener is doing really, really well. Well, whatever you do, don't tell me how you are because I don't. Perfect. You got it, brother. Hey, thanks for coming back, you guys. Uh, We are on part three of Fleetwood Mac, and this is kind of a special episode. We've not done something like this. This episode, we are going to be doing an extremely deep research dive into the making of the album Rumors, their biggest album to date. Breaking new ground for ourselves, and it is been pretty daunting. fun. Yeah, this has been an extremely fun uh, research, and we're hoping this episode is a lot of fun as well. It's a really interesting story, so hopefully you guys agree. Yes. So the book that we read is called Making Rumors by Ken Kelly and Steve Stifle. And it's a, like we said, it's a really interesting book. Uh, he Ken Kelly was an engineer and producer on the Rumors album, and he was uh, the father to singer Colby Kelly. I've been awake for a while now. You got me feeling like a child now. Cause every time I see your baby face, it starts from my toes. Oh, I Colby Kelly, angel. <laughs> Oh, man. And I honestly sure, think it's not that pink. I mean, it could be. Ken oh, Ke- <laughs> I think Ken Kelly either helped he produce it. that or yeah, did produce I was it. Watching an yeah. he produced it. Uh, this guy, he he had done a lot of things, and this was kind of his his magnum opus doing this album. Like this is the biggest album he'd ever done, and has done since yeah, like, then. He got and thrown into like this. Twenty nine at the time. Obviously, isn't going to top this, but. Yeah, so uh, in the book, he gets a lot into his relationships and stuff, uh, which we don't really care about. He talks about how he was seeing a girl from the studio they were in and and another girl and stuff like that. A lot of things you don't really care about, but it's still kind of, I mean, it's interesting, whatever. It's basically just just his biography. getting his big break in writing, and he is (laughs) loving it. Oh, he loves it. He is really squeezing this thing. But got to know how to tell a story, man. Yeah, but in the process, he does get into and really gets into the process of recording this album. We aren't going to get fully into it like he does. He talks about uh, different instruments they use, different mics he uses for everything. I mean, he I don't know how he remembered all of it, if he took a really good account during all of it, but he or did. Or if he's just really good at bullshitting. <laughs> he's making it that all he up. said in an interview, he said that he went back and listened to the tapes. 
like would oh, listen sure. to them like as the they were being masters. recorded to re- try to remember, yeah, what was happening on each take. That would make you sense. Know. And yeah, when you listen yeah. to it back, you immediately start to remember. Oh yeah. yeah, I use this mic for this, or or you remember little things. Oh, Stevie was doing yep. this in the studio at the time, or we had just done a line of coke and then record. You you kind of remember how music the and memory, made. man, powerful thing. Powerful there was thing. a nice uh, there's okay. a nice interview on YouTube that I watched with some guy that I've never heard of that he talked about it. It was, was kind of neat. Yeah, that may have been Richard. Richard Dashett, the other guy who helped record. Who knows? Who knows? We didn't watch that uh, interview, but we did read this book, and it's pretty good. If you are interested in learning more about this album, please go check it out. So we're going to dive back in. If you remember from the last episode, they were growing in fame thanks to their white album. Stevie and Lindsay are now in the band, but within the group, all the members were going through breakups and hardships. And then in the beginning of 1976, they began recording their sophomore album with this lineup. So, let's get into it. Let's Story begins. Right, the just right. Let's get into it. You just heard the, the meat potatoes. You just heard the diving board. Boy, that's us diving in. Mm-hmm. So the story begins January 28, 1976, when the band met up with Ken Calais and Richard Dashett at the Record Plant Studios in Sausalito, California. A month or so before, Richard had worked with Stevie and Lindsay on their now dead follow-up album to Buckingham Nicks. And they were also shacking up with him periodically. They just lived with him on and off. Yeah, they were going through a pretty rough period, so they would just live in his basement. And I think Stevie would clean his house for him. Yep. I think they did studio stuff for their studio time, too. Like, they helped out at the studio with cleaning and shit. Yeah, so they were struggling, and then they got this break in Fleetwood, and that led them here. Ken had worked at Wally Hyder's studio and was asked to mix a live show for the band. He and Richard worked on it together, and they really hit it off. They found that they had basically the exact same style in recording and mixing, because if you know anything or if you don't know anything about mixing and recording, it really is a personal preference thing. So some people really like a lot of lows in their mix. Some people like a lot of highs. Some people like to leave things out, and they found that their views on the recording and mixing process aligned. So they kind of hit it off, and after the mixing was done, they went to go get the band went to go get a radio edit for Rhiannon with another engineer saying goodbye to Ken, leaving him behind. But after that went terribly, they fired that engineer and then promoted Richard to head producer, who then called and asked if Ken could do the uh, radio mix for Rhiannon. Ken agreed, and then they met back up to mix this song. It's going to seem like we're talking about these two guys that aren't in the band at all a lot but i truly think if they weren't involved in producing and recording this it would have turned out a lot differently yes i completely agree with that i think that they you'll find out as we go through this they started out as just engineers but they started kind of giving their input and by the end of it they were telling the band what to do for a lot of parts so it would have it would have turned out a lot differently and probably a lot worse they had some really good ideas they yeah they did a lot of things that ended up being big points for the songs. Yeah. And they really helped corral them, keep them focused. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> That's a huge part of it. The band loved Ken's mix of both the live show that he did and of the radio edit for Rhiannon. So Mick asked if he would be interested in recording their follow-up album. This meant that he would have to leave Wally Hyder's studio, where he worked for the last five years, and move to Sausalito for the foreseeable future. But... He agreed. He kind of said that this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and he wasn't going to pass it up. I can't imagine this, though. Like, 
this is a stable job that he's been doing for five years, and he's just leaving to go record this band that you don't have no idea how this album is going to do and then end up being part of history. Yeah, he said that bef- when, before the band came in to do their live album, he said that he had no idea who they were, so he had to go listen to them and kind of yeah. get to know them. And then he, he was like, look okay. them up because of getting that live mix. Yeah, so he kind of... He learned. He kind of knew that they had a ton of potential, so he was happy to do it. And Wally Hyder said, "When you come back, he said try and bring the band back to us so that they can record here." And he kind of, Wally kind of told him that he had a spot back at Wally Hyder's when he was done recording this album. So it, was, it wasn't too frightening, but it still was like you're still leaving comfort of getting a weekly paycheck to go do this that you have no idea what you're gonna do. It's crazy. So back to January 28th, 1976, Ken, Richard, and the band arrived at the record plant located in a tucked away neighborhood in an unassuming building. I've never wanted to go somewhere so bad just on description alone. Sounds so much fun. Yeah, it sounds very, very cool. So the studio (laughs) was set up with its own rec room with couches and ping pong tables and stuff like that. It had a kitchen a full kitchen with two full-time chefs that worked around the clock and apartments nearby where the band and crew would stay. And they even had designated areas to do drugs. I love it. Welcome to the 70s, (laughs) where the coke is flowing and the weed is blowing. Good. (laughs) Well, nice, Tony. Thank you. Really nice. So Mick, John, Ken, Richard, and some others stayed in the apartment Christine and Stevie got an apartment on their own, and then Lindsay stayed in a hotel. I believe it was a hotel for this time. Needless to say, tensions were high among the members. Christine and John were in the process of divorcing. Lindsay and Stevie were breaking up, and Mick and Jenny were on the rocks and about to divorce. And now they had to make this album. In hindsight, we could totally see how this album would not have become what it did without these perfect circumstances that were the worst circumstances then. Yeah, they went through so much turmoil internally in the band, but it created this masterpiece that everyone got to enjoy. It's so cool. So they got to the record plant at shortly before noon to get to know the space and what they would be working with. Ken, with the help of Chris Morris, an engineer that worked for the record plant, would go through the process to get the studio ready. This studio was covered in carpet and gave a very dead feel, meaning there was no reverb, so the instruments sounded very flat. Basically, it's a lot like the studio I'm sitting in, completely covered in pads. That's why my voice sounds super direct into the mic, no echo. If you listen to Ethan's with the door open on the last, on the first episode of this series, it's got a little bit of reverb to it. And then if you listen to a lot of podcasts or stuff like that where it's just recorded like on a table, it's got a very roomy feel. It's because they didn't deaden the sound. And that's what this studio did. But it's actually kind of not a desired sound now. Back in the 70s, it was desired, but um, you'll find out that... Things have really changed, baby. Things have really changed. Yes, they they kind of worked to get it to sound as flat as possible so that they could then add the dynamics themselves. And then as time went on with different bands and stuff like that, they found different ways and different rooms to record in that did give this more open feel so but that's what that's what the record plant wanted to go with they tried to fix this dead feel by putting a piece of plywood underneath mixed drums to get some sort of echo so hopefully the drums would echo off of the 
the plywood and that would help a little bit. They then used 30 mics to catch what would be the band's live sound as they all played together. They used 10 mics just on the drums, miking each piece of the set and then getting some overhead mics to get the whole set so it would catch the cymbals and just the little sounds that the drum set makes when you play it. Mick had his drums set up in a very unconventional way, ordering the toms from mid and then high and then low instead of the standard high, mid, low that's usually seen. People think that's what gave him this his unique style that he played with that you can hear on Go Your Own Way and even some of the older bluesy songs that he plays with. So it kind of gave a different feel when he played Phil's. They then mic'd each of the amps for the instruments and then some mics around the room to get the feel as the band played. And something to note here, everyone knows this album for being built on a lot of hatred of each of the members towards each other, but in the studio it was actually pretty civil. They may have had small outbursts, but mostly they just avoided each other when there was tension and when they weren't talking about music and arrangements. And there honestly was a lot of times when the band was in the room together and they would kind of laugh and things like that. And as they drank... Yeah, there was a, there was a ton of tension involved, but they still worked through it. Yeah. Th- they put it aside. These guys were all hugely professional and they could, they could do that. And they would get more social <laughs> when they drank, smoked weed, or snorted coke when it was introduced into the group. My favorite thing from this book, uh, there's one line where he says, Stevie wasn't doing that much coke yet. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. he emphasizes yeah. that. He he said, Ken said in the book, he said, Stevie was really down to earth at this time. Like, he, yeah. he, he, he like, backhand digs at Stevie the whole there's episode. There's a lot of backhanded comments. Yeah. It's real fun. She wasn't putting holes in her sinuses yet. Yeah, not yet. Not yet. But it would start here. So once everything was set up, they started testing instruments around the room. Mick was tuning his drums for half an hour or so, then Ken started to listen to them in the booth, and they sounded horrible. There was no life Real, to real bad. Real bad. He said they sounded like a toy drum set. It was just, it was just like... Dum, dum, dum. There was no life to it at all. It sounded yep. like they were hitting cardboard over top of the drum head. Uh, and at one point, apparently, Mick came into the control room and was like... How's it sound? Like, because he he couldn't hear what it was sounding like in there, and he came in, and they were like, "Uh, your drums have no balls." Like, <laughs> that's so scary to say to fucking Nick Fleetwood, even though yeah. he like wasn't who he would be later. But yeah, I mean, still being like your inch, like he just spent half an hour tuning it and getting it perfect, and then they're like, "Yeah, it, it sounds sucks." Awful. <laughs> yeah. So, to try and fix this, Ken, Richard, and Chris would spend the next five days trying to get them to sound right. Moving around and changing mics, and then putting up and removing things like barriers to try and get the drums to sound bigger. But nothing seemed to work. This really sets the pace for this whole process. There's going to be a few different like close calls that could really have just ended the whole thing. Yeah, they get real close yeah. a couple of times. So... Ken and Richard were terrified that they were going to be fired before they even began because the band was becoming really irritated with what was taking so long. If you remember, they fired that engineer from doing the Rhiannon single, and I think it was just because he couldn't get the perfect sound they wanted. So they that, was fired. So that was in one day. That was Yeah, that was Ouch. one day. So they were so scared that they were going to be fired during all this. So it was five days of coming in and being like, <clears throat> is today the day that we... What's the last day? Yeah. 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 So finally, Ken 
just gave up. He threw up his hands, and he just had the whole band go out to the studio to start rehearsing, and he was going to tune the drums and try and fine-tune it when they were all playing. And at this point, apparently... Uh, Mick had kind of make, started making subtle suggestions like, should we try and get another engineer in here to help us? Like, it yeah. was, it was they, getting laid on at this point. It was getting pretty close, yeah. And they, <laughs> they were just finally like, no, we'll figure it out. We got it. So once the whole band started playing, it sounded great. That's when Ken realized that he needed the whole band to be there, not just Mick. His drum sounds were small when they were played alone, but when everyone was playing, they sounded great. So on Monday, February 2nd, the band could finally start recording. I feel like that line, the, the they needed the whole band, that's like, that's that's the subtitle of this whole episode. Like, you can't have just one instrument. Oh, just one for instrument. sure. Yeah, yeah. They, like they all needed everyone there. If Everything they took out one part away. It's all in. Yeah. So they they had figured it out, and they were ready to start recording. So they really started, good observation, man. Thanks. Really, man. really good observation. We're proud of you. Thank you. I'm looking for sub. I'm looking for sub messages here. I like it. You're really digging sub in. Things. You're really digging in. So they started recording with the song called "Keep Me There," written by Christine. This was a pretty standard song layout with a nice jam at the end. A lot of these songs are going to be going off working titles, and they end up becoming the songs you see on the album. And this one becomes a big one. Oh, it becomes a real big one. Real we'll, get big to one. It at, we'll get into it at the end of the episode. Big and, yeah. it's, it's good. So this was the very first thing that they recorded the, on, on the 2nd of February. Once they got it down, they decided to record it. Uh, and just like that, they were recording their album titled Yesterday's Gone at this time. When the three of us recorded, Ethan, Austin, and myself, we had our parts down and we basically just went into the studio. We booked, I don't know about you guys, but when I did it, I booked, we booked three days to do it, to get all of our parts recorded and mixed and then to be sent off to be mastered. So we basically just went in, didn't really get any kind of input. It was just like, all right, hit play or hit record. Good, you're done. Go hang out and play StarCraft for two days or whatever. But, <laughs> but... <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. Um, Just go sit in the lounge. But these guys, it was completely different because they were touring basically right up until the time they got into the studio. So they couldn't polish any one track. So when they went into the studio, they had ideas and skeletons of past songs and ideas to build up and produce over time. But they didn't have basically any complete songs. So that's where the producing in the studio came from. And honestly, this sounds way more fun than what yeah. we did. They just started with bones. It is yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, it's fun to have a producer, the person that yeah. gives you and ideas. And that's where Ken yeah. and Richard would come in later as they gave the ideas and eventually got put on as producers. So they I was laughing the- at the beginning because I thought you were talking about us recording the first episode of this. I thought you were just <laughs> bullshit, and you're like, yeah, I booked three yeah, days. I didn't know what you were talking about. I was like, I was trying to, because I went through and did some, like, grammatical stuff, and I was like, oh, oh I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> as we've said in many episodes before, all three of us are musicians. We have all recorded in studios, but we kind of all did it the way this way instead of we all did it the way that I spoke of rather than the way that Fleetwood was doing. Hey it. man, don't give me too much credit. It was a house. <laughs> it sounds, sounds like we a all studio recorded. <laughs> yes, at least <laughs> we've recorded. Well, you know, potato, potato. Look, it doesn't matter. We all ended up at the same place. Here we are, all sitting oh, in our shit. closets. <laughs> Here it doesn't we matter. Are. We're all just in our uh, closets. Doesn't matter. We're all on the same <laughs> level. <laughs> God. So they would do this this recording and writing for the next six months. 
They would record during the day, starting at noon or later, and then most nights not getting done until midnight or later, sometimes as late as 8 a.m. And when there was time, they would all then go out on the town, drink, and hit on women. When they weren't bringing the local gals back to the studio, that bang, bang. rock star rep. Oh, they all love to flaunt the... Oh, they love to bring God. some girls back. Yeah. That'd be such an easy pickup, though. Oh, yeah. Just be like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here in town. I'm just I'm hanging out at the bar. We just got done recording all day. Oh, what band are you in? Fleetwood Mac. Literally, well, oh. literally Ken multiple times said, like, <laughs> hey, I've got a song in the top 20. Like, I've got a, a Fleetwood yeah, Mac song that I'm working so on. So it's like laid brick and mortar for them because they get a top, like, single uh, yeah. while they're recording the whole yeah. time they're recording their their the album, album just works building. itself up the chart yeah. so they can just God. go anywhere and be like yeah i'm i've i've got a, a platinum record on my hands or whatever and that that's me on the radio right now you hear that yep that's what they come back do. to my place and when they went out it was not like they really didn't all go out together most of the time it was ken richard and like Lindsay who would go out everyone yep. else kind of went and did their own thing so it was all pretty clicky yeah which is which is just fine with me um, also, and by Clicky, John just stayed by himself all the time. John did his own thing basically the whole <laughs> just time. Just got drunk and stayed alone. Yeah. Um, also, I want to say this right up front. I love Fleetwood Mac. Lindsey Buckingham is a fantastic guitarist, but he's an asshole. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, we'll get into it. Yeah, we'll get, we'll into, get into it. it. You'll, <laughs> you'll see specifics, but we'll, we'll I just want to put Lindsay. that on, out in the world right now. He's an ass. So yep. on the second day of recording, uh, the day began with them trying to get Christine's piano parts for keep me there she found out that her piano was out of tune so everyone had to stop uh, just so that the piano could be tuned she had perfect pitch and she literally would just stop everything if she thought anything was slightly off the littlest bit yeah, yeah. they were all so they passionate all the time that they that dang girl that graduated high school <laughs> see that's what a college education will get you <laughs> yep that's it <laughs> so while they were waiting around john brought his new girlfriend sandra into the studio Christine wanted to bring her new boyfriend in, the lighting guy from the previous episode, to which John, who's already drunk at this time, refused. Christine made a remark that Sandra was there, so why couldn't she bring in her boyfriend, to which John replied, Yeah, but Sandra means nothing to me. <laughs> I'm Sandra do each one up. worse than the last. God. <laughs> I thought that was pretty get good. Drunker. I thought that was pretty good. So Sandra stood up threw her drink in John's face and then stormed out and then Christine who was actually friends with Sandra stormed out after and then John tried to catch him and make up and that was the end of that day. Some days I'm going to say this like right now that this relationship between John, Sandra and Christine is so goddamn weird to me. It's a weird one. It's really weird. Like they still date him and Sandra for a while and at one point she lives with Christine. Yeah, I'm so, it's so it's they so weird. Hey, you know, it's like Three's Company, man. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't <laughs> you know just about Got to keep things civil, and that's exactly what they did. Kisses are frozen, you know. frozen. Yeah, good for them. Good for us, because you know, my parents didn't have a turbulent relationship after they divorced. No, none of ours did. <laughs> no, none of our parents had, had, we, had we turbulent relationships. We all come from stable homes, Tony. <laughs> we all come from stable homes. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh. That's great. <laughs> okay. So, some days, uh, days like this would happen 
semi-often. Some days would be hugely productive, and then other days would end with them getting nothing, and then it would end with outbursts or arguments or hurt feelings. They had been in the studio for over a week at this point, working on Keep Me There, when Lindsay brought in his next song. He had a cassette that he had that had a song on it that he wanted to try. This song was called Go Your Own Way. Loving you. It had Sorry. a guitar part. and oh, You want to sing? I'll sing it. Are we I'll gonna, sing the are song. Are we going to do it? Let's just do it. Oh, we all sing the song. You can go your own way. Go your own way. You, you can call it another lonely day. It's just a lonely day. All right, I'm glad you I got that. You can go your own way. <laughs> go your own way. <laughs> Oh my God, that, we've been teasing it. That's the song Austin and I would sing in the car all <laughs> the time. We would scream it as loud oh. as we could. Feels I good. love this song so much. It's, so, God, it just makes you feel something, anything in this dead world where I feel nothing. I sit <laughs> at a job for 10 hours a day staring at a screen, waiting to die, but I think of this song and, and it's you're all just okay alive again. <laughs> you can go your own way. <laughs> It's so, possible. So when Lindsay introduced the song, it had nothing more than a guitar part and partial lyrics, as well as the song sung uh, with no lyrics. So he sang the notes but didn't have any words for it, which Lindsay would fill in later. Much like the whistle part on Sitting on a Dock on the Bay by Otis Redding. But I think Lindsay did it for a reason, because he did this kind of often, because most of his lyrics were about Stevie. Bingo! Yeah, he was at, he was kind of a, like embarrassed or ashamed to sing the lyrics in front of her because of the material that they were yep. about. So they listened to it on a cassette, and then John asked Lindsay if he could play it live on acoustic, as that's what he preferred rather than trying to play along on cassette, so that he could jam along. And they all memorized the outline of the song and how it went as none of them could read music. And then they went into the studio to record the track as a whole. It's crazy. Like, they're going to make literal history in music and not a single one can read or write music. Just like old Waylon. And I wish I could say that this gives me hope. It, nothing's going <laughs> to give me hope at this point. There's no hope. Hey, man. Hey. <sighs> Dead tomorrow, man. Tomorrow's the day that you're going to hit it big. That's, That's what you got to remember. It's another day. Just another, another long day. <laughs> oh, dear. So, they, so well, they would, what I mean by memorizing the song is they would memorize the outline of the song. So they would memorize, like, it, like Lindsay would be like, all right, this song goes verse, chorus, verse, bridge, chorus jam session or whatever like that's how they would memorize it and then when he was actually in the studio they'd be playing along and then he'd be like just shout one, it out two, three, chorus! Yep. and then like they would move to the chorus like that's kind of how they learned to play this music so you can actually hear one of the early takes of go your own way on the super deluxe version of the album which is available on spotify or apple music wherever you listen to music it's literally called the super deluxe version because they also have a normal deluxe version so the super deluxe version is what has everything that we're going to talk about in this episode Lindsay told Mick that he had heard some drums on the way into the studio that he really liked that he wanted Mick to try. They had a very tribal Tom feeling. Mick was struggling to get it, but John, who understood it but couldn't play drums, matched the part on his bass to the correct rhythm, and that helped John get it. So, like, John would be like, 
boom, boom, boom. Like he, that's yeah. He would basically play the rhythm part on his bass to help him get yep. it. So when playing the part, Mick goes from the offbeat drum tom part uh, in the verse to a straight four four beat during the chorus going from very chaotic to very clean and straightforward i'm a drummer so i this all kind of makes a little bit of sense to me i apologize if it doesn't but straightforward is just like the part you hear whenever you hear drum parts it's just like essentially that's what that is so if you want to read into the instrumental psychology of the song the lyrics written by Lindsay towards stevie as we mentioned show strained confusion of their relationship saying things like if i could baby i would give you the world but you won't take it from me this is matched by the tom parts being offbeat and kind of chaotic and then during the verse Lindsay says you can go your own way you can call it another lonely day. And this is uh, during the straight drum part, meaning this is the one thing that Lindsay is certain of. He's basically saying, I don't know what you want from me, so fucking just be lonely. I don't care. And I don't know what instrumental psychology is or if instrumental psychology is a real thing, but on the opposite end, I did know from the beginning of this podcast that Tony would slowly turn this podcast into whatever that is. I just didn't think it would be this quick. Austin, do you think you could get a degree, like a bachelor's degree in instrumental psychology? I don't know. I don't know. Hey, I I eat this shit up. That's <laughs> I know you that's, do. That's what I'm saying. That's I will bring this up a lot because man, I I love this shit so much. This is like this is what I really wanted from the podcast. And I fully plan at some point to do a side like on the Patreon or something like that. I plan to do this with albums and just break it down song by song to like basically look at what the song is. It's saying. funny because and today, if we get to that point in 16 years, you are free to do that. I was joking Thank today you, I, that I was going to make a COD mobile podcast with my room, my, my classmates. And I told them if they make the outline, I will record with them. <laughs> And, so, and bless you, just, you for it. <laughs> yeah, that's you've determined that's basically what, what you do here, Ethan. Yeah, exactly. You've like determined I know. See, what it's going to take I'm here for you to the, do any podcast. If you ever play basketball, I'm, I'm a cherry picker. Like I'll just sit at the other end of the court and wait for someone to pass it to me while I'm right by the hoop wait and I'll make easy it. easy shot. Yeah. I get it. I get easy it. Easy shot. Yeah, no, you're not riding coattails. <laughs> so the song um, – the song is very upbeat, but once you know what the lyrics are saying and conveying, it's it just sounds super angry, and Lindsay is almost screaming during the chorus. It's it's awesome. I love it. So good. While recording the song, Lindsay stopped the band just to yell at Ken about not letting Richard do anything. This would be the first of a couple random outbursts that Lindsay would have. Lindsay is not a stable person, and this was like supposedly from all accounts, just in the middle of a take. Like, he was doing a take, and, like, nothing had even happened, and he just stopped, and he was like, God damn it, will you let Richard do something? And Richard was like, Ev- "Like everything's fine, we're fine in here. Yeah, literally just freaked out for no reason yeah. whatsoever. And we're going to see more of these that don't make any sense. And that really stressed mm. out Ken, because Ken was like, am, am I doing something wrong, whatever? Yeah. And then Richard, who kind of already had... Um, a reputation with the band for being level-headed and stuff like that was just like... Well, and he knew Lindsay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he was just like, nah, man, you're good. Like, this this isn't anything weird. You're good. This 
is this is a normal thing. Just get just get used to it. Which is Settle one, in. Yeah, which is wonderful. Just but get used to the abuse. You have to remember that all the members were super passionate about their parts. Everyone would get angry and genuinely resistant to any changes that were being made on their parts. Even suggesting parts to the other members were touchy. So everything was a big balancing act. But for Go Your Own Way, mixed drums were sounding underwhelming with everything else. So after they did it a couple times and Ken kind of told them what was going on, Mick decided that he had an idea. So he loosened the head of his drums to lower them and make them sound a little bit bigger. Uh, they would ring a little bit less, but they would sound thicker. And then he turned his drumsticks around. So instead of hitting with the tip of the stick, he was actually hitting with the handle of a stick, which is a little bit thicker. And that also helped to give the heavier sound. They loved the sound and recorded the song nine times, but did not get the master they were looking for. Uh, a quote from Mick is, God knows if the drums aren't perfect, a song is not survivable. And that is so true. And he, we're going to see so many times where he knows exactly what he needs to do to make the drums perfect for the situation. Yeah, and he, he's honestly the most open to changes. You'll find out later that... Um... Lindsay has some ideas for him, and he's the and he's really like. <laughs> Lindsay oh, has yeah, like one that. or two ideas. Yeah, yeah he's Lindsay got, has like one or two ideas for people. Couple, yeah, got a couple, just of like ideas. little suggestions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's not pushy. No, no, it's not. It's not abrasive at all when he says stuff. <laughs> no. So after and a yeah, break, Mick's Mick good about it. Yeah, he's cool. <laughs> like we said in the last episode, Mick is super level-headed and cares about this band more than literally anything else, including more his than, his kids and his family. Yes, so. Yep. That's, that's, that's how that goes. <laughs> so um, after they couldn't get this part, they took a little break, and then they came back, and then Stevie had a song that she wanted to work on. So she showed the group her song called Gold Dust Woman. It had a very country feel, something she pulled from her grandfather, Aaron Nix. This version was pretty flat and uninspiring, but the band knew that it had potential. This song was about groupies hanging out with the band hating christine and stevie because they got in the way of the male members in every sense of that phrase Good they job, would tony. be so thank you way they, to go tony thank you they would be so angry towards the girls but then as soon as the guys would walk in they would get giddy and smiling and then just completely ignore ignore uh, uh christine and stevie like they were super two-faced and so this is just all about being this gold dust woman basically like you're just you trying to one catch anything thing on the brain it's all you can think about and i know it uh, yeah pretty cool um they <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is pretty cool pretty cool yeah it's pretty cool i like that a lot <laughs> they again listened to stevie's cassette to learn the parts then Lindsay played it so people could add to it Stevie originally played piano and Christine played organ on the song, but then Christine took over the piano part so Stevie could focus on singing. This is how so many of their songs were developed for this album. Just one person would have a tape recorder on them that they had like been messing around with the song and they're like, hey, let's try and work on this. Yeah, and it may be it's something crazy. It may be something as small as like a like a portion of a lyric, or yeah. for like for Lindsay, it may just be a um, a fun guitar lick that he did or whatever. And they're like, yeah, we can build a song off of that. And that's that's what I was talking about with like the producing in the studio. Like it's like, hey, what do you guys think of this? What can we add to this? And then they would all just be like, yeah, I can make this. I can make this. I can make this. And yep. that's how the songs were built. It's awesome. And so cool. 
Another thing that helped with this a lot, kept the creative juices flowing, is if they did their best to stay buzzed and high. So mm. Mick liked Heineken. John likes screwdrivers and mixed drinks. Christine liked some Chardonnay and champagne. Lindsay liked weed, as did Richard and Ken to some extent. Oh, goodness, excuse me. Oh, my God. Ooh, I feel like Ethan. That sounded here. throaty. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, That was an Ethan burp. <laughs> yeah. And Stevie Nicks liked it all. She wanted all of it. And Stevie then, would get, take what she could get. Oh, yeah. She, yeah. So and on then the, it wasn't enough. <laughs> on the 5th of February, <laughs> cocaine found its way into the studio for the first time. This was how they would work the long hours that sat before them. Doing, uh, after taking a toot, as they called it, very UK thing apparently, they took a toot, uh, they were uh, amped that's up. Actually, it's actually a very common phrase. Is it? Oh, yeah. Okay, it's oh, a very, very common phrase. Uh, so it's, like it's, it's like a pretty human it. phrase. <laughs> I've never heard it. All right, on this week's episode of Teaching Tony About Drugs. <laughs> give me my, right, give me my <laughs> one minute on Austin, you're teaching me too. I don't know anything about Coke. <laughs> How about that? Toot. I'm not Did they gonna call the straw a tutor? I don't know. I'm not gonna say that I just inferred because the band is English. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. I'm Good thing nobody that thought that's here. what you were doing. <laughs> yeah, you weren't making a stereotype. <laughs> So after they did uh, the widely understood phrase of a toot, they were amped up and they were ready to record Gold Dust Woman. They recorded the song eight times and then recorded Go Your Own Way nine more times. This would be the first of their many transcension nights where they would play until whenever they were done and all tired. So transcension nights, this was something Mick came up with where he thought everyone was at the perfect level of buzzed or stoned or high, whatever it may be for them to make the perfect music. And hearing Ken talk about this is so funny because he's like, most of the time it did nothing for us because if if you know anything about musicians, he was like, there's a 12-hour rule. If you leave the studio, you won't be back for 12 hours. So if you stay till 4 in the morning, you're not back till 4 p.m. the next day. And most of what we did that early in the morning was not usable. Yeah, yeah. he said He said in the many transcensions, they got nothing. That yeah. was all. Like Mick was so convinced it was like their secret weapon. I just, and it did it nothing just, for. It just makes me think of like when everyone's been drinking for a while and the party's kind of winding down. And then the one person who's like loaded is like you guys want to go to the club and then they, and then everyone's like Fah. like and then they just have to keep partying way longer yeah. yeah and only bad things come after it something my grandma told me nothing good happens after midnight and that that You're that right, applies grandma. for in the studio as well you're right grandma she got it. Well, i'm nothing nothing it applies to everything in life yeah also yeah no inside and outside the studio is what i'm saying wherever you are it's bad it's bad yeah go to bed if you're tired, you're going to cheat on your wife, just go to bed. How about that? <laughs> just go to bed. How about that? The only thing open after midnight, or, uh, only thing open after midnight is uh, hospitals and easy women, right? Yep. And poncheros. Yeah, bingo. Good old the, poncheros. The triad of making you feel terrible uh, in the morning. Love poncheros. God. <laughs> that is a Midwest burrito chain. Oh, you you got to go try it out there. Queso is to die I'm trying for. To think. What's, what's the comparison for a national one? Chipotle. Um, there isn't. Thank you. It's not the same. It's not, it's not comparable. <laughs> it's not yeah, but it is. Comparison. Technically, they both make burritos. 
And that's as far as it gets. <laughs> so during this first Transcension night, John left the studio at 11 p.m. And then the rest of the band stayed and played until like 2 or 3 in the morning. The next day, they started at 2 p.m., as Austin said, 12-hour rule. And it's tried and true. And Christine introduced one of her songs to the band called Oh Daddy. This song was about Mick and his ongoing divorce with his soon-to-be ex-wife, Jenny Boyd. I feel like I'd expect him to be, like, not down with this, but he really loved this song. Like, he didn't have, no, he had no bad things to say about this song. (laughs) Well, like, let me tell you, let me tell you a short story, boys. If I may, if I may indulge. Yeah, I'm buckled up. I'm ready. When I was in the band, when I was in my band called I'm Prettier Than You, um, we recorded a song called Rename. And I found out after the song was, uh, after we had broken up as a band, that song was about me and my current girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, uh, my relationship with her. And because the lead singer did not like her very much. Oh, my God. How about that, huh? (laughs) Yeah, so the song is all about how you should cherish your name and not give it to anyone. And now I've been married for happy three years. And <laughs> I fuck am off. No idea. <laughs> yeah, oh, cool, right, guys? Yeah. I found that out long after. Um, but well, the point of that, I love that song. <laughs> yeah, good well, song. Shit. I, I really enjoy listening <laughs> to that no song. Idea. Yeah, god dang. But it, but it's yeah, it's all about uh, my my. Is that one you guys recorded girlfriend. at the studio that you went to? Oh yeah, no, yeah. it's fully recorded. Oh. Yeah, Can't wait. I'll show it to you after the episode. Okay. <laughs> or if you want to go check it out, it's called Rename. It's on <laughs> iTunes. Uh, by I'm prettier than you. I don't know. I think if you play it, you actually give the yeah, guy who wrote the song a couple cents. So whatever. <laughs> Just do whatever you got to do. <laughs> However you feel about Tony. <laughs> let, that, let that guide your yeah, decision. Yeah. yeah, if you hate me, then that, that's, so that's what you should do. Um, so, <laughs> so Christine and O'Daddy... She played it for everyone, and then everyone learned it, and they went into the studio to try it out. Around this time, Ken and Richard were starting to fully understand the band and what they were going for. So after Christine got mad at them for not paying attention to what tempo was best, they started to help produce as well as engineer. And that is not an easy task to be— so much work. Yeah, to be the technical guy who has to get all the levels right and everything like that, but then also listen to the song from a critical standpoint and try and give— influence on what should be done it's yeah that's difficult i imagine i've never done it before yeah, but I, imagine. I, I would imagine <laughs> they also pushed the band to use a metronome to record so their tempos would be consistent for everything and that would really help when they did the overdubbing and stuff like that later which we'll get to when we get there i have one real quick question yeah how did you find this out like where did this come where how did this come out what about the song. <laughs> oh, I think Brady told me. It was either Brady or Booth. I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure that Race confided in one of them. I think it was Booth. Oh, my Booth God. Booth is a little bit more open-lipped when, on that yeah. kind of stuff. It was probably yeah. Booth. It was probably Booth. Then. Yeah, he's a little bit more open-lipped. So, yeah, he told me that that's what the song was about, and I was like, after, once I listened to it, I was like, yeah, probably that's, right. Yeah, it must be. <laughs> that makes sense. I don't remember how it goes, but I'm going to listen to it that after That makes sense. Yeah, Race and uh, my wife, Brittany, they never got along very well. But Brittany won out. Yeah, I'll I'd say, say so. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> very clearly. <laughs> no, that's how break. it goes. True love, right? Um, 
<laughs> so for this song, Oh Daddy, Christine used speakers that rotated when she played, so the sound would slightly shift right and left throughout the song. It happens really slowly, but you can hear it slightly shift uh, between your left and right speakers because it's all done stereo a couple times a minute. This was something Ken loved to play with. Ken and Richard were almost, uh, as we said, the sixth and seventh, seventh members of the band during all of this. And Ken loves to say we anytime he references the band as a whole. He's yeah, a part he's, every he's, time. Thank God this was a time before Google Images and nobody could look up what the band looked like because he could sell that he was in the band. And, you know, I got to say, he basically was. He was yeah, he was, it's true that he was. But he I was mean, playing still. the sixth instrument, which was the mixing board. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he, he, he milked it for everything he could. Good for him, though. So yeah, the I'd song, do the same. I'd do the same. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so the song was recorded five times, and then on the last take, Christine thought that she had made a mistake, so she hit the keys like five or six times to try and ruin the take and get everyone's attention, and this actually did the exact opposite. They loved the part that she added, and uh, they used the take that that was played in, and you can actually still hear those notes on the keyboard at around 3.38 in the song. So it's right after the keys are doing kind of a waterfall part. It's just like, and that's it. And that's her trying to ruin the take, but it actually did the exact opposite. It's a really good little little tidbit in there. Yeah, Ken said he still listens for that part and really loves that part every time he listens to it. It's a cool little part. Yeah. It's a great so after they were done with the instrumentals, Christine sang her vocals in one of the isolation booths so they could get a clean vocal track with no instruments bleeding into the take. And uh, basically an isolation booth is just a small booth off to the side with like glass and stuff like that where you can do your vocals and not have any other instruments bleeding into It's like a booth it. that like it isolates you from everything else. What's the word isolate mean? Shut up. <laughs> I'm just trying to make sure everyone understands, you guys. We have yeah, to break it down to, to the simplest terms for everyone. I get it. Talk like you're speaking to a 10th grader. Bingo, a 10th grader. <laughs> yeah. A yeah, you can talk old. pretty loosely, actually. <laughs> yeah, you don't, don't have to explain stuff. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the 50-year-old in my that. class, he, he, I don't think he would have understood isolate at this point, so I don't uh, know. That's fine. He's probably just yeah, an well. idiot. Fuck you, Tom. All right, go on. <laughs> so between takes, Ken was rewinding the tape to start again when something slipped off the machine due to the vibrations and fell through the tape, snapping it. You have to remember this is 1976, and everything they record is recorded on two-inch tape. So, like, it's all real fragile shit. Like, anything could have been happened. the whole song gone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so everyone looked pretty horrified. Everyone was in the booth with him, and Ken hurriedly taped the tape back together and played it. And to see what the damage was. And then what happened was it actually split right at the very beginning of the song. So what they heard was nothing. So it's just like, daddy. And then, <laughs> so they had lost literally O and then the letter D. And so that was a huge relief to them um, that they had lost so little. And Ken made a note to change it later. And then the band actually temporarily called the song Addy because it made them laugh every time they heard it. It's also kind of a pain in the ass. Like, couldn't you just broke like a little bit earlier? Like one half just second earlier, barely any notable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they would they would have to go back and redo her vocals for this part just because O D had gotten yep. cut off. What a pain. So around this time, they also spoke with Mickey Shapiro, who, if you remember, was their lawyer who had taken care of their now settled Fleetwood Hack dilemma. Clifford Davis put on them. 
They won and retained rights to the name and the songs of Fleetwood Mac. He told them that the White Album was doing super well and climbing the charts pretty steadily and that they would have to knock it out of the park with this album because a huge sophomore album meant that they were going to be set for life. Like one big album is cool, but it doesn't mean that you're set and you're going to be good forever. But if you have two good albums in a row, you'll have no issues for the rest of your life. So I was just about to say that. So this put a ton of pressure on the band and caused a lot of second guessing for the group. John declared that he wanted to come into the studio at 10 a.m. every morning to listen to all of his parts and make sure they were perfect. That meant that Ken and Richard were going to have to record for 13 to 16 hours every single day, which meant a lot more coke for everyone. So they got back into the studio to try out another Lindsay song that he had been working on, now titleless, eventually called Secondhand News. Right now, he played the songs with chords but sang none of the lyrics he had because, as we said earlier... This song was about Stevie, and he knew that she would be upset if she heard the lyrics. And Lindsay did this a lot, but Stevie didn't. Stevie laid it all on the line. Stevie just go ahead and <laughs> sing whatever it was. Yeah, I imagine she's like sitting in the booth with like her headphones pressed, singing, just like direct daggers staring at oh, Lindsay. Yeah. <laughs> just staring at her. <laughs> yeah, just, just this so is about mad. you. Yeah, and it's funny. Like it's so funny that. They were obviously going through this rough patch, but Lindsay was still like, I don't want you to hear my songs, even though she would have to hear them eventually. And like, she yeah. would sing on most of the songs he wrote. So, like, it doesn't even make sense, but you know. She what knew you know? what they were going to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like she was like, man, I sure hope he sings about his car or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. You kind of knew what the subject matter was going to be. Yeah. It's pretty given. Yeah. But he was still embarrassed, didn't want her to hear it right then and there. So, um, he just basically did not sing lyrics or just sang the, the lyrical melody that was going to be played with just humming or whatever the rest of the band added parts in but Lindsay didn't like any of them and this would cause them to have to come back to the song over the entire time in the studio trying to figure out how it should sound Lindsay wanted everyone's parts to be straightforward and simple but mick and john were playing these complicated rhythms and licks so they would have to table it for now and this is just a glimpse into the Lindsay. we'll start to see more and more and when you're in a band like this where every single person is, like, such an extreme talent, one person trying to take control is going to cause so many problems. Yeah, and this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg that we're going to get into in the next episode because because later— It only gets worse. Yeah, it gets way worse. <laughs> so strap in for that. But right now we have pretty pleasant Lindsey Buckingham to deal with. So the next day— Mildly. 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 Marginally pleasant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's still a little, yeah, I don't know. But um, So the next day, John, Ken, and Richard came in at 10, as John requested, to listen and redo John's bass parts. Later, Mick came in, visibly upset. It turned out that Jenny had left him for good. She was still seeing Bob Weston, the old guitarist for Fleetwood Mac, who was kicked out. Damn it, Bob. God damn it. God Bob. damn it, Bob. What an <laughs> And decided to fully cut things off with Mick. Luckily, road manager John Courage, who was introduced in the last episode, came in to comfort Mick. He kind of was pretty close with Mick, so he could settle him down like no one else could. And I don't think anybody else really wanted to, so it was pretty good that he came in. 
the rest of the band got back to work on secondhand news, which would now receive the name Strummer because of Lindsay's playing style on the song. And if you know the song, the whole song is just like literally like chicka 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 like it's pretty fitting name for it. Yeah. So they'd worked on the song for the next two days, still struggling to get the parts they wanted. They said the song sounded underwhelming. They finally got a good structure for the song and then tabled it for now. Then they broke for lunch, and when they came back, they got back out, go your own way. They all took a little hit of coke and then started recording. It took 10 takes to get the first half of the song down, and then 11 takes to finally get the second half. They got the second half on take 25, counting the takes from the previous session, and then Ken and Richard had to manually splice them together to get the take that sounded seamless. I mean, audio production back then is so much different now. Like, it's so much more unforgiving back then because like anytime you mess up something small I mean it was all analog it was all on tape and stuff so like anytime you try to make splice and stuff I mean digital technology has helped so much it's insane yeah you yeah. can't just highlight in backspace yeah. right. or, or yeah. hit control Z anytime you mess up you can't do that <laughs> Ken said that he loves recording this way he said that digital recording it's so um, thoughtless like you can record something and then just store it on a hard drive and you can restore and you can store you know like hundreds of thousands of hours of audio on a hard drive and but on tape it's like all physical tapes so you have to carry it around and so he said you have to be really thoughtful for what you record and when you're that thoughtful he said it makes you remember exactly what all you've recorded which helps you out because he said a lot of the time a later like later he would pull something back out that they had recorded and that would like give them the inspiration for a part that they needed that they yeah. weren't figuring out like it would so add so much more in your yeah. brain to things yeah, yeah. i I don't know if he's really the person to be talking about this kind of thing. <laughs> he's a little out of his league. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I'm not taking his word for it. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll see it when I believe it, bub. Yeah, suck yeah. it, nerd. <laughs> Why don't you screw off? So uh, back to 1976, they pulled it off, and by the end of the day, they finally had a good base for Strummer and Go Your Own Way. The next day, Christine got out a song that she had been working on. The band got their first take of the song, You Make Love and Fun. It's a great song. It is. They're you all, make great. They're all great songs. You can take me songs. to paradise. We're going to say it every time. Yeah, I will. You can take me I don't know. Maybe one of them, none of us song. will say that's, anything. That's and then <laughs> Maybe we'll yeah, actually fuck Please that cut one. that. That was the wrong <laughs> song. Austin, that's on, no. that's on you. <laughs> Based on last episode, you get to keep your fuck-ups. <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> oh, this I is just sang over my revenge, head off the last the album. The Revenge of Austin Thomas. Just <laughs> waiting <laughs> in the wings, waiting for Ethan to fuck up once. I'm at your once. mercy. <laughs> I'm at your mercy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're my freaking crosshairs, Tony. <laughs> just the, the smallest thing Austin's going to pounce. I, I like it. I like it. I respect that. I got control I of the that. editing, so. <laughs> I respect it. So Christine told the band that this song, You Make Love and Fun, was actually about her, her dog so that it wouldn't hurt John's feelings. But in reality, it was about her current boyfriend, Curry Grant, the lighting guy. I have to think everyone immediately knew this song wasn't about her dog, though. Yeah, I really got to think probably no one was fooled. Like, if you listen <laughs> to the lyrics, it's like, no. I don't think anyone was too fooled about it being about her dog. 
I don't know. It could be better. I love my. That's dog, willful so. ignorance at that point. I think <laughs> is what like, you call that. Yeah, it's about my dog, and everyone's like, "Okay, Christine." Oh, this does sound like it's about your dog, yeah. doesn't it? Ah. <laughs> it's all about your dog, huh? Oh wow! <laughs> She's like, I think they're buying it. I really think they're buying it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so christine he figures it out pretty quick oh he, immediately basically <laughs> he, he as soon it. as the lyrics go out he's like this is about me <laughs> or i'm not about me it's about my wife moving <laughs> on with her life yeah so, basically <laughs> so christine played the Ouch. piano part and then the group decided that they needed something more so they decided to add a clavinet which is basically an electric piano, very popular in funk and disco. It's got an electric sound and a lot of attack on the notes. I'm sure that you guys have heard it. Obviously, if you've listened to You Make Loving Fun, but basically any disco song you listen to, it's the, it's the piano part that's like, you know, that part. You know, yeah, you guys get it. That yeah, part, it. that exact yeah, part. Go listen to You Make Loving Fun, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, your one chance there. They then they there then was. added a wah wah pedal, which adds an onomatopoeic wah sound to the instrument. This sound is famously heard on the guitar part of Rage Against the Machines "Bulls on Parade" or "Voodoo Child" by Jimi Hendrix. It's also hugely popular for guitar solos. So basically, any song you hear where like the, the guitarist hits like a screeching note and it's like wow. Oh, that's a wall pedal that's doing that. Yes. So they added it to the clavinet on this song as well. Christine could not play the song on the clav and then also run the wah pedal. So Mick stepped in, running the pedal in time while Christine played. And uh, Ken said that it was pretty funny seeing this. Like, it's literally Christine, like, playing her part and then just... Mick sitting beside her, like pushing the yeah. wah pedal. Like, it's <laughs> just, just like pushing it in time. <laughs> like, it's just having a hell of a time. It's like the monkey fun guy splashing the cymbals. When he was playing on stage, he looked like he was having such a good time. Oh man, I bet he's yeah. having a freaking yeah. blast. He does. Now that he's like, I don't have to fucking actually worry he about anything. Yeah. Shit. I'm having, having a show great up. time. I mean, I'm just, just have to make sure there's not blood in my pee and that I'm where I need to be. <laughs> he has another drummer with him now. He just has to be there. Mick Mick deserves this. I'm going to say yeah. that. This is like 10 hard years of playing different genres of music, watching people come and go. Like Mick deserves all this. So does John and so does everyone to be honest. But like Mick can have all the fucking fun he wants. <laughs> <laughs> and he does. So, oh, he does. So adding this wah and clavin um, really boosted everyone's creativity, and Lindsay had immediately had ideas to add parts. And this is something we will see again and again is, like, one person will play one thing, and then everyone's like, I could add this to it. I could add this to it. Like, it's, they get it ba- so it op- much inspiration from each other. Yeah, it just opens the floodgates for everyone. Like, it's so cool to see. And everyone kind of knew also, like, when a song wasn't doing well. Like, when a song was kind of failing, they were all like, yeah, maybe we work on this song again. And Mm -hmm. then they would, you know, make these awesome, incredible songs. Yep. So they all took a bump and recorded Lindsay's parts, and he did this three times before needing another bump. So you really see in the cocaine use. Sounds about two times too many to me. You said it, brother. You should just (laughs) do a bump straight off the head of his guitar. You got to just keep going. You got to have it ready. Uh, With the increased use of cocaine by the band, Ken thought it would be funny to play a joke where he filled a bag with uh, Coke. 
Which was flour. It was flour. It was... I didn't mean to put that in for me to say. I just, I thought you made a typo. No, I wanted you. If it's in oh. red, I'm not going to say it. Like, I was sitting here and I was like, that, is that, because I didn't see it with the edit. I was like, is it, what? No, you yeah. filled up a bag full of flour. Yep, right. it was all flour. And then when the band uh, requested another bump, they, he, they called him in and he pretended to like spill it everywhere. So he wrapped it really tightly. And then when somebody was like, Ken can all get a bump. He like spun around really quick and just flew, flew <laughs> flour everywhere. And the whole thing. Well, he said he initially <laughs> like rolled it up and grabbed it by the end that wasn't rolled. So when someone asked, you just like let it all unroll and start pouring on the floor. And everyone was like horrified. Yeah. They were, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they, were, they needless to say, they were all very unimpressed. But then they saw like Richard laughing in the booth. And so they knew it was a joke. And then they were instantly like, but where's the coke? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mick apparently was like, in mid laugh, Mick was like, but it wasn't the real coke, right? <laughs> yeah, like they were. Yeah, they were like, they thought it was funny, but they were like, please God, please oh, God. oh shit, this isn't real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know. Uh, oh sure, hope for it to be real. The band had fun, you guys. The band had fun. Yeah. It wasn't all doom and gloom. Yeah. So Lindsay played his part with for You Make Love and Fun through the rotating speakers that Christine had used on Oh Daddy to give it that same shift effect. Kind of fun. Uh, kind with of fun. a solid bass down for Make Love and Fun, they called it a night at 7 p.m. This was a pretty easy one for him. When they got back in the studio the next day, they had officially been in the studio for two weeks straight. 14 days straight. So they took the day to listen back to everything they had done so far and then to get a rough mix down. And this is where they would basically just play with levels and then boost bass or boost uh, the kick or whatever. Like basically just try to sound, listen to the song in the best sounding mix possible. So John, who had learned what Make Loving Fun was about, decided that he did not want to come in that day. Understandably. Yeah, pretty fitting. They mixed for 12 hours and then called it a night. And then... 10 a.m. the next day, they were back in the studio with John. That day, they worked on some vocals, and then Lindsay added some guitar parts to make love and fun. Stevie and Lindsay were in the booth during doing some backup vocals when Lindsay stopped singing just mid-song and then started screaming at Stevie for no apparent reason. This would be outburst number two. Yeah, apparently this was like their first big one where... Like, in just the middle of the song, we don't know what happened because apparently in the middle of the song, Stevie was like, well, I'm not going to fucking live with you either then. And, like, they're like they're having a conversation while they're recording this song somehow. <laughs> yeah, so everyone in the booth was very confused with what was going on. And so to alleviate the situation, Ken quickly told them to go again, hit record, and literally as soon as the music started, Stevie and Lindsay, who were still arguing profusely, just stopped fighting and then started singing like nothing had happened. Still professional at this point. So professional. We'll find some less than professional moments, but... Yeah. We'll <laughs> uh, they decided to take a break to release some tension. They all smoked some opioid they all smoke some opium derived of, uh, you know, I don't know. You were going to try. Yeah, opium. You were ready to go. Opium, you guys remember opium the opioid? Opium is the source, buddy. <laughs> Opium's the source, so he, they're just smoking the real stuff. Yeah, they're so smoking it's not derived the, from anything. It's just a plant. Well, from poppy seeds. How about it's derived from the earth, you fuckers? Yes. It's derived from the earth, water, sunlight, and time. LSD's poppy seeds, right? LSD is not from poppy seeds. No, 
but opium isn't. Some some kind of something's from poppy seeds. I don't freaking remember. Opium's from poppy seeds. That's what I thought. Well, well, poppy you guys seeds. Remember, poppy you seeds. Guys remember, you guys pop- remember the Seinfeld episode where Elaine keeps failing her drug test because eats too many poppy seed eats, muffins. Eats a lot of poppy seed muffins. Yeah, and say poppy poppy seeds come from a plant that is in the same family as the opium plant, so that's why it'll make you pop positive because it has trace amounts of opium in it. Oh, wow. Cool. Wow. Pretty Ethan, cool. you were in the military. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I was in the Air <laughs> That's Force. That's cool. That's really cool. Thank God you're out now. Guess what? A doctor will prescribe you Percocets for just about oh anything God. if you say the scale's a 10 out of 10. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, good thing we don't have a crisis in this fucking country. Yeah. Woo! I don't even like Percocets. They make me nauseous. You don't say. How about that? Stay tuned. I don't know. We'll just keep talking about drugs lightly. <laughs> we'll get back hey, into it at Next some week, point. I need you all to uh, come on over to my other podcast. It's uh, Drugs Ethan, with Ethan. you've promoted your fake podcast so often, you're going to actually have to make a podcast at some point. Yeah, there's been yeah, a few Yeah, eventually I'm going to have to do Drugs with Ethan, I know. <laughs> Yeah, oh, boy, I can't your, wait. Have fun with that podcast. I'll be on, too, and I'll be the real I ignorant some, I guy. I got some stories. I got some okay. stories. Well, I'll do it under fake names. I'll do it under pen names. Yep, fake names. I like it. So Not they me. all, um, so after they had smoked some opium, Ken went back into the studio to clean up and wrap some cables when he heard some piano being played in the studio. He followed the noise and found Christine singing and playing alone. He loved the song, so he told her to do it again, and he would record. What followed was the first recording of Songbird. He showed the rest of the band the song, and they didn't really much care for it, so he added reverb to make it sound bigger. And that's when he had a, I'm going to say, a brilliant idea. Very good idea. I will back that up. Yes, brilliant. So instead of artificially adding reverb using the computer or using the, the mixing board and running it through machines, he decided that they should genuinely play the song in a really big hall and naturally catch the reverb and room sound. Oh, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah, after he- yeah, after hearing it, it sounds really dumb. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Austin. So they wanted to do it at the Berkeley Community Theater Hall, but it was all booked. Uh, but they gave the band information to contact Zellerbach Auditorium, located on the University of California campus. They booked the hall for March 3rd, three weeks from then. They would then have to get a mobile recording truck and supply all the mics themselves. So, so Ken called, I believe it was Wally Hiders, to use their mobile truck and then set out an order sheet to rent the mics. And with that on the schedule, they got back to work on another song, made by Stevie called Silver Springs. So this was a song that she had been working on for a while, and the band really liked it, but they feared it would be too long to record and be on the album, coming in at over seven minutes long. They worked on it for the rest of the day, and then Lindsay had to call it a day because he had smoked some weed that was laced with PCP, which affected how the body receives sounds and causes hallucinations, so he was completely useless being in a music-filled room. The rest of the band followed suit. If you don't understand what that's like, just watch the movie Training Day with Denzel Washington and Ethan Hawke. There's a scene where Ethan Hawke uh, smokes some marijuana that Denzel Washington gives him in a cop car, and turns out his life's piece of pee and Ethan Hawke starts tripping his balls. It's pretty fun. I didn't know you like to get wet. Yeah. Yeah, you know. <sighs> it's a fun movie. Yeah, that's a good scene in a good movie. Yes, it is. 
Was that man on fire? No. <laughs> that's that's training day. You are not that... the man on fire. <laughs> I can literally only think of one Denzel Washington movie. That's embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> King Kong ain't got shit on me. Go check it out. Go check out that 10-year-old yeah, movie. A, take a look at it. <laughs> so the next day, after the piano got retuned again they worked on adding some more parts to strummer oh daddy and gold dust woman and then more mixing of course mixed in with drinking smoking and some cocaine this was day 17 straight in the studio most days doing more than 12 hours the band was really working hard but stevie seemed to have it easier than anyone else most days she just sat in the booth smoking and drinking as her only instrument was her voice and there were two other lead singers it's so funny to me that she ends up becoming probably the most well-known member of Fleetwood Mac when I don't want to say she brings the least to the table. She does have some amazing songs that she wrote, but really it was just her voice and her lyrics, which don't get me wrong, are insane. But she would also try to play tambourine and they would just end up having Mick record over it. <laughs> so, I mean... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, multiple times they have, like... Stevie just is like, I'll play the tambourine. And they're like, <laughs> all right, have fun. It. And so they do it. And then, like, later that night, they're just like, all right, Matt, can you go record the tambourine part? <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> they just, they're like, all right, I don't care, Stevie. Just do what you got to do. Like, whatever. It's, it's like fine. when, uh, I think Ken was talking about in the interview that I watched, he was like, yeah, at one point, Stevie came up and asked if I could put some more uh, pixie dust on the mix. And I just, I just took a knob and pretended to turn it and then told her it was good. And then she just went about her business. It's about like that. That's, That's exactly That's what I wanted. That's just what I was looking for. <laughs> you got it, Stevie. Oh we call that the Stevie knob. I love it. Duh, just label oh, it the hey. pixie dust Ken, knob. it seems like you always turn the same knob no matter what I ask for. <laughs> that's the Stevie that's just, knob. That's what you got, that's baby. That's where the pixie that's the dust Stevie is. Knob. <laughs> Here, take this, take this fucking bag. Go, Dude, yeah, do yeah, go I don't go sit on the couch in your oversized sweatshirt. I don't. Care. Don't forget the hat. <laughs> we'll talk to you in four days when we need you again. Oh, <laughs> so after uh, after all of this, they decided that they took they needed a day off. So they took a day off, and then they came back to work more on Silver Springs for the next two days. They had recorded the song around 20 times, and they ended up using take eight. So this was what happened a couple times where they would keep recording it, and then they'd be like, all right, no, this is the best take, whatever. And then Stevie added her vocals and shelved it for a while. They then pulled out Gold Dust Woman again. They liked the setup they had used for Silver Springs, so they decided they wanted to try it out for Gold Dust Woman as well. Mick also decided that he wanted to add something to the song, and he found that something in what else but the most overused percussion joke in history, a fucking cowbell. Oh, I was, was going to make a bit don't, saying, don't does anyone want to go into the bit and thinking we were going to breeze past it? And Ethan was already queuing up the bit. <laughs> I was already ready. I was did singing. The bit. <laughs> Seasons don't fear the reaper, nor do the uh, wind the summer thanks, rain. Ethan. I'm ready for it. Always I'm count ready. on you. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, that joke still is still funny. Still every funny time. whenever you tell people that you I play love drums. Will it's wonderful. Uh, so you can hear it basic. You can hear this cowbell 
basically through the entire song as it plays on the two and four count of the measure. They didn't explicitly say, but I'm also convinced that Mick changed his symbols between songs as well. Silver Springs, this is real drum nerd knowledge, uh, Silver Springs has a very bright and crisp symbols, and Gold Dust Woman has a rattling shimmering symbols, like he put a metal beaded necklace on the symbol to make it rattle. Uh, they did actually say that he had two different sets of symbols he would switch between based on the song and then an assortment of like random symbols and snares that he would use in different scenarios. So, I mean, like I was saying earlier, he had like a whole arsenal to make everything perfect. And he wasn't the only one. Every single one of the members had like multiple instruments. So, so many. Lindsay had multiple guitars and Christine had multiple pianos and John had like he had a bass that was completely fretless so then he could do his sliding yeah. easier and stuff. And yeah, they all had like a lot of instruments that they brought into the studio. And like you can hear it if you listen to these two songs, you and really the whole album as a whole, you can hear the instruments change sounds crazy throughout the album. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Like the shimmering symbols give a very eerie like airy feel compared to the normal crash that you hear so it's yeah they like i said they didn't specifically say it for this one bit but they did say that he had a bunch of other parts and that's just me catching on to that as a drummer myself so they also so cool yeah, thank you. So they recorded the song seven times. Fuck off, Austin. I don't give a shit. <laughs> so they recorded the song seven times and used take four. After this, they all split as it was Valentine's Day, and they wanted to hang out with their current affairs. One little fun kind of side story is while they were recording at one point, uh, Curry Grant, who was seeing Christine at the time, was trying to sneak into the studio to like give her a Valentine's kiss. And apparently he was, like, trying to sneak into one of the ISO booths, and Ken and Richard both, like, saw him, and they were, like, waving him off and, like, doing the throat thing because John was in the control room. And somehow, like, at that exact time, John gets up and he's like, all right, I'm going to redo this part, and goes into the actual live room, and they, like, pass each other through opposite doors. (laughs) Like... Like, could have been a total shit show. (laughs) Like, a legit... Scene from Scooby Doo, literally Scooby Doo, yes. <laughs> like a comedic <laughs> cartoon bit. They like, they like followed each other out of the doors at one point, and like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they like snuck him around and he like ducked below windows and stuff like that. Like, perfectly uh, done, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> So when they came back the day after Valentine's Day, Stevie had another song that she wanted to show the band. She performed it for the group, and everyone got ready to record the song, Dreams. So Mick played a straight hi-hat through this whole song, just like a... And so Ken decided to put it through a phaser, which makes a wave-like sound by subtly blocking different frequencies in a wave pattern. This created a very mysterious and dreamy-sounding hi-hat. You have to listen pretty close, but if you have good headphones, you can actually hear it making it. And it's pretty slow as well, so you have to listen to it on the whole, but you can hear it kind of shifting in and out. And the pianos and the guitars in this song utilize the wah pedal during the verse if you need another example of what a wah pedal sounds like. Then they overdubbed random parts for various songs for the next few weeks. They added bells and whistles, sometimes literally, to the songs they had strong foundations for. By now, they had strong starts for nine of the album's tracks, and they were feeling 
pretty good with themselves and as they should have they'd already they'd only been in the studio for just under a month and um, they had nine songs kind of laid down so on february 25th start. yeah so on february 25th they jumped back in to the song keep me there so one thing that I really love about reading this book, making rumors and just kind of learning about the process is like how often they just come back to songs like they will do a song to shelve it and then come back for it a week later oh, and like yeah. just pull it like like it's not like one session. They just do the whole song. Like it's since they're literally writing the songs in in real time, like they have to just put it away when their creative juices have flown out or are done flowing for that song. Yeah, they're like, really good that's, at identifying when they need to stop and get away from it for a little bit and then when they need to do that to another song and when they can come back to the other one ideally like they're really good at identifying that exactly yeah it's it's super cool i would i'm i'm never going to do it because i don't have a band or i don't have a i will never have a band that's like good enough to do this where we can produce in a studio but like it sounds so cool oh, yeah. like it's so fun so um maybe one day though we'll live produce Hopefully. a podcast when we do like an interview or that'd something like that. That'd be pretty like fun. We'll see. I would love that. Yeah, we'll see. Stay tuned for that. Thing, so, yeah, uh, that would be pretty fun. <laughs> yeah, it still would be <laughs> pretty fun. Sounds like a good idea. <laughs> so on February 25th, they jumped back into uh, Keep Me There. They tried to match the strength of the beginning of the song to the strength of the end jam they had and loved, but they still couldn't seem to find it. So over the next week, they jumped back to Gold Dust Woman and Dreams to work on those even more. On March 2nd, they called it a night early so that they could get up fairly early to go into Zellerbach Auditorium to record Songbird. When they got there, this is so cool. When they got there the next day, they found that the stage had been set up with tall barriers behind the grand piano, so the sound would be pushed out into the house. Um, I worked at a live theater when I was in college, and if it was anything like the barriers I had to move when I worked at my campus's theater, they were huge, literally three stories tall, and made out of wood, but they were super effective. Like they completely blocked the sound from going back, and it pushed all the sound out into the house and made for a big live sound. We would set those up anytime we had like live musicians or when we had orchestras play so that all the sound would get pushed down to the house and you would hear everything. It was God, that's amazing. wonderful. They had also rented eight $3,000 microphones to place throughout the almost 3,000 seat hall. This auditorium, I would apologize for keep going back to the one I worked at, but this is very, very similar to the one I worked at. I think the one I worked at was like 2,200 seats or something like that. And it's honestly a pretty surreal experience to stand on stage of an empty house and look out at a hall that big. It was um, probably seven or eight stories tall of seats and it's just i mean it's you can yell and it just echoes all around and it's so so fun to go stand on there and stuff like that tony where we had you tons work of again? dance parties i worked at the uh gallagher blue dorn on university of northern iowa's campus i met plenty of famous people i met willie nelson who we mentioned as you all know you all know who willie nelson is you all we know all know willie. willie yeah and i had dinner with gabriel Iglesias. that's so, kind of fun yeah, kind of cool. Um, but that's I went to you and I for four years. <laughs> you did. And I saw this place one time. You did. I do saw that. the prices right there once. I wanted to go to that show. It was very fun. We won't get into that though. That doesn't matter for this podcast. <laughs> we could. We could get we into it. Yeah, we could just bit. all talk about right. events we've been to. But we won't. I think do we it. got time. <laughs> um, so to set the mood more in this hall, Ken got Christine a bouquet of roses to put on her piano. 
And then he used a spotlight to like shine on the roses just to make it really, really emotional. And like it was a dark stage with just the roses lit. Very, very cool. So Ken, Richard, and Chris, as well as the road crew, had to manually run snakes that were hundreds of feet long around the hall to connect to the microphones around the room. If you don't know what a snake is, it's basically a bundle of cables that are encased together in a big cable to more easily move those plenty of cables a long distance they had a truck that had to sit outside and they had to connect everything around the hall so they had tons of 250 foot cables to reach up into these uh big like galleries with these mics sitting in it to get the sound that they wanted after it was all set up they asked christine if she could play to a click but she couldn't as in she was unable to not that she refused she tried to play to it and she physically could not do it could not do it (laughs) yeah So they figured out a workaround by having Lindsay sit behind one of the barriers and then listen to the click into his headphones, and then they would have him strum along on his guitar to the click, and then his guitar would be fed into Christine's headphones. As stupid as it sounds, it actually worked perfectly. The only issue that they had with this is that Lindsay would sometimes accidentally play too loud, and it would be picked up by these hypersensitive mics that were placed around the room. Christine also wasn't allowed to sing when she played as it would get picked up by the mics. They weren't miking her voice yet, so they couldn't have any vocal bleed on the piano tracks. This was super difficult because she loved to sing when she played piano, and that's really honestly what she did in the band is she sang and played vocals, so it was really hard for her to not sing. They said you have to sing in your head and nowhere else, basically. Yeah. But at 1 a.m., they finally got the part that you hear in Songbird, the piano part. After this, Christine sang into the hall to get her vocal part. It was perfect pitch-wise. It was absolutely astounding, but it didn't have the reverb that Christine and Ken and Richard were hoping for. So Ken hatched another plan. He told Christine that she was good to go, she was free to leave, and then he called the staff into the hall to see if they had any speakers around. They set up a big speaker on stage, and then they played the vocal track through the speaker into the hall capturing it with all the room mics that's the vocals they used and the vocals you hear on the track so it's actually christine being christine singing and then being played through a speaker into room mics and then being played back into the track that's that's how they got the big roomy sound that you hear on song pretty wild honestly so cool (laughs) they finally got everything cleaned up and and they were out of the hall at 4 a.m it later came out that the song was about John, and he said whenever he hears it, it makes him cry. And there was a little thing uh, that John said about when they were doing talks about their reunion. Uh, one of Christine's big uh, stipulations was that they would not play Songbird anymore, and everyone was like, why? And basically she was like, I'm tired of crying over it. And he was like, oh, I didn't know you were crying about it too. But also he gets married to his now wife at Christine's house. It's a, it's weird. <laughs> like we it's say, yeah, it's, weird. Weird. it's all just fucking weird. Yeah. Water <laughs> under the bridge. Weird, cordial relationship. Yeah, but they, I mean, they had like, they, they loved each other. Like they still loved each other even at this time. They couldn't stand to be in the same room, but like they had love and respect for each other. Yeah. And so... That's yeah. So he he got emotional when he played it, or when he heard it, and she got emotional when she played it. And I can understand why if you've ever heard the song because it's super emotional. <laughs> it's an emotional song. Yeah, yeah it's a pretty emotional song. And another thing, going back to my time at this theater, the Gallagher Blue Dorm, uh, I have stood on 
the blind, the bare stage and talked out into a hall and heard that reverb. And so I can't imagine what it was like hearing this song in real time. So put yourself in this situation with me. It's 2 a.m. You've been working for probably 12 hours or more. You're entirely exhausted and you know that once this is done, you can go home and go to bed. So the song starts to play and echo throughout the halls, never before heard by anyone. I would have to think that this was one of the most humbling experiences for Ken. Like, you, Oh, that'd have to be huge, yeah. Yeah, you just hear this beautiful b- piano and vocal part going out into the hall. Like, it's just, yeah, everyone, like, you just know the rest of the world is asleep and, like, I don't know. I've, I've, well, he does say that the, him and Richard get straight into a limo after that to go home and they were just, like, silent the whole time, like. They knew they something big was happening. Yeah, they knew that they had caught something huge for yeah. when they've done this song. I, I don't know. I it yeah. If, when I put myself in that place, it's like that is very emotional. Like it's yeah. It's that it's a haunting song. It's so haunting and beautiful. It's so cool. After they were done in Zellerbach, they took a few days off and then came back into the studio on Sunday, March seventh. Stevie had another song that she wanted to try called Think About It Before You Go. This was a pretty straightforward song with a country feel sung by Stevie and Lindsay. It took about 90 minutes and eight takes to get the take that would be the master. This song would not be on the album, though, so if you know rumors at all, you've never heard of this song, and that's why. It did, however, find its way onto a Stevie Nicks solo album called Belladonna five years later, her freshman album. When they finished that, they had some weed cookies, courtesy of the in-house chefs, way cooler than modern day. No way you're going to get that in today's society. Just cooks <laughs> literally bringing you out weed cookies. That nah, depends where uh, you're at. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's true. I forget that it is legal in a lot of the country now. Tony, you're making this sound like good, but from what I've heard of this story, it's a little different. Basically no, what no. happened. Let me let me preface. <laughs> Them getting weed cookies is cool. What yeah. happens because of the weed cookies is not cool. Now go ahead. So so basically what happened was they got these cookies brought to the control room and they all just start eating them cuz hell yeah, chocolate chip cookies and they find out that the chefs put an ounce of weed in melted butter that they used to cook the cookies as like a treat for these guys. That's generous. But they didn't tell anyone. No. So these, they're just all eating these cookies that are super potent. Hey, man. And basically had to call it a night at one point because they were all just so fucking stoned. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they all immediately are like, I don't think I'm a person anymore. <laughs> Yeah, Ken was like, I couldn't be around any. Like, I was so anxious to even see people. He was yeah. like, I was going back to my room, and any time I'd see a person, I would turn the other way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they all got super fucking stoned, like, by accident. I have to think that, like, the chefs were like, man, I... Listen, l- okay, listen to me. Star Wars Episode Seven has just come out. I really want to watch it. You want to leave for the night? I got an idea. Like, we got to get these that, people. Is out that of the here. Empire Strikes Back? And I know how to do it. Yeah, epi- I think that I think it came out in like '71, and this is '76. Yeah. But I'm just making a joke here. Jaws just yeah, came out. It's I don't good. know. I don't know. But yeah, I have to think that they did it intentionally. Like, let's get, let's these, get these guys out of here. Out of here. Let's Indiana close up shop early. <laughs> May have been Indiana Jones. I any don't know. number of Harrison Ford flicks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Any Steven Spielberg vehicle. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. 
<laughs> so yes, they all ate these weed cookies, got stoned as shit, and then went home for the night because they literally could not function anymore. Starting the next day, the band would start coming in in shifts. John would come in at 10 a.m. to listen to his parts, and then the rest of the band would trickle in and out throughout the day. This meant that Ken and Richard were now having to put in 16 to 18 hour days most days. This increased the cocaine use even more so they could keep functioning. The transcensions were happening more frequently as well, sometimes starting as late as 8 p.m. and not getting done in the studio until the sun was coming up. And they were also becoming less and less, like, productive, like, less getting actually done or usable. Yeah, yeah. If you've if you've kept track of where we're at, like I said, they had the base for nine songs basically done, um, 10 or 11 with this. There are only 11 songs on the whole album. So, like, they basically have the um, the, the parts for most of their songs. So Granted, like, two get cut that they're working two on. Two do but. get cut, yes. But, like, they are not, they are, like, the, this is wasted time. Yeah. Huge oh, wasted yeah. time. Just, just drunken, coked-up jam sessions <laughs> that everyone's like, all right. Like, I'm sure even Ken was like, I'm hitting record, and then, like, just uh, sat back and he, fell asleep for 20 He minutes. talks about eventually it getting so bad that him and Richard would, like, kind of have these goofs between each other where it would get so late in the night that none of the people in the band were paying any attention to what was happening. They were just jamming. And one of them, whoever got to it first, would just slip out the back door and leave everything <laughs> to the other one. Yeah, yeah. Ken said that, like, one time he was about to leave, like, sneak out, and then he looked around and Richard, Richard was just gone. already gone. Oh. <laughs> He's like, God damn it. Now I have to sit here. Yeah, the band was just in the studio jamming for hours at a time. Like, <laughs> like all they cared about was someone was pressing record. Yeah. Oh, what a pain in the ass. <laughs> so um, one of these days, Christine brought in a new song that she wanted everyone to try called Yesterday's Gone, which is what the album is being called right now, later changed to Don't Stop. This song was written by Christine for John when their relationship was ending and they were becoming more cordial as they processed their doomed fate. As Christine said about this song, I never meant any harm to you. So they were just becoming like, yep, this is just something that's happening. Like, we are both dating other yep. people, like, basically. We like, just have to get past it and yeah, keep moving. Yeah, I, I have no ill feelings towards you, essentially. Lindsay liked the song and requested that he sing it with her, so they did the song as a duet. And after 25 takes, they got the master. This song would go on to be Bill Clinton's campaign song and was part of the reason they had a reunion in the 90s, which we will fully get into in the next episode. But back in 1976, uh, they called it an evening when they got this song done. Pretty fun that they Bill Clinton used a song about cheating. Yeah. Uh, was campaign song. Uh, weird. Wait, what do you mean? Hey, man, Monica Lewinsky <laughs> has been doing really good lately. She's been leaning in. Yeah, dude. She's really, seriously. What is happening? Like in the last (laughs) day or two. What are you talking about? You need to educate yourself. What is going on? Austin. Hillary Clinton should have won the 2016 campaign (sighs) election. Okay, so our history podcast that we started this week is called Us. I got nothing, but (laughs) we're getting too far into politics here. (laughs) (laughs) Woo-wee. Do you struggle to get yourself out of bed in the morning? Does the 2 p.m. slump hit you especially hard? Do you doze off during all the PTA meetings and school concerts your kids are in? Why are there so many concerts? Why do kids have to sing all the time? Just look at their tablets more. Jesus. (laughs) Too real. 
You know what could help you get the extra energy you need? Red Dawn, of course. They have the products for every situation. The Red Dawn liquid will give you the wake-up call you need, and their sleepwalker will declutter your mind and heighten your mood. They come in capsules and a delicious shot as well. Pomegranate, I think? Mm-hmm. Ooh, tasty, tasty. You can find them at your local Casey's, Love's, Racetrack, Murphy USA, as well as many other retailers. To find a retailer near you, go to reddawnenergy.com and use their store locator page. You can also find them on all social media with the handle at reddawnenergy. Tell them on and five sent ya. You know, they'd love to hear it. Red Dawn, inspire, innovate, invigorate. Over the next week, they worked on the vocal parts on Strummer, Don't Stop, and Think About It. They were all getting to their wits end, having been in the studio for over two months at this point with just a few days off. It was a lot of drinking, drugs, and sex. And reading the book, really breaking it down, it all seemed like super reasonable. Like the cocaine use and drinking and drugs and random sex with everyone, like it was all just expected. Like they were just like, well, yeah, I have to work all day today. So obviously I'm just going to do cocaine throughout the day to like help me get through it or whatever. How else would I get through the whole day? Yeah, Ken talks about he comes home and there's just, like, naked women laying in his bed. So he's like, well, obviously I'm going to have sex with them. Like, I don't well, want to. Like, but like, oh, I'm trying to go to bed. Oh, God, I, I just need like to go it. to bed. God, yeah. I just want to sleep. I just, I just have to have sex with these beautiful But, yeah, I mean, I did. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> I obviously had sex with them. Like, yeah, so it all he makes it sound all super reasonable. Um, but, you know, that's how it goes. Uh, Ken said that. When he would be so tired, but like so wired at the end of the night that he would end up actually started, he started drinking NyQuil on his drive home so that he would be tired and drowsy when he got home. Um, he was playing a real life beat the clock. That's a fun game. And that that's is a, a fun real... game. Woo! Sometimes if you ever I have a drive... night drive by yourself, that's a fun game to play. <laughs> you, you ever just, just take an ambient and see how long you can stay awake? <laughs> well, while driving? Yeah. Actually, yeah. you know what? I plead the fifth. Let's keep going. <laughs> oh, God. dear. Oh, dear. Oh, Innocent until proven guilty, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I just like 20 minutes out, he just starts chugging NyQuil, and then he walks in the door not remembering a single thing. Good for him. See, the fun so, part about Ambient is you start hallucinating if you stay awake. Oh, it's like a <laughs> That is fun. That is fun. That is pretty fun. Yeah. So when they got back in the studio, Lindsay had a song that he wanted the band to try out. It didn't have a title right now, much like um, what secondhand news. Oh my god! You okay? Just keep burping. It's You're burping. emulating over there. Uh, yeah, I am emulating. Does that mean like I'm doing a great job? I emulating is like catching on fire, and you're just <laughs> doing it from the inside out. Man, I am on fire. That's why I have to keep going. <laughs> so when they got back in the studio, Lindsay had a song he wanted to try out. It didn't have a title right now, much like secondhand news didn't have a title when it first started being looked at but it had uh it would temporarily be called brushes because Lindsay wanted to mick to play his drum part with brushes for the song Lindsay said it was a complicated guitar part that included a lot of harmonics where you touch the uh guitar string with just the very tip of your finger very lightly on the guitar string and it will play a note in a much higher octave and then of course his signature picking style ethan is that correct as a guitar player yeah Cool. All right. Great. Nice. Yeah, it just uh, cool. you hit a you, hit, you you touch it real softly, and when you pluck it, it makes a, a really high octave note of yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Wow, Thank so you. cool. Oh yeah, I did figure out uh, in the last episode I was talking about how Lindsay developed this unique style of his. 
He had mono and was bedridden for six months. Yeah. And he couldn't you know, sit up. He had to stay laying down, so that was all he could do was just play, play with guitar. the guitar on his chest. I've been watching videos of him playing guitar, and it makes me hate myself. Cause he, <laughs> just, he never uses a pick. Yeah. He uses yeah. his top thumb and then uses the other fingers. Oh, God, God, I So suck. cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Lindsey Buckingham is a fantastic guitarist. He's incredible. But Real man, big dickhead. But, man, is he an asshole. Yeah, he's a dick. <laughs> so they oh, played around. coming with, up, too. Oh, yeah. So they played around with tempos for brushes for a while, and they finally found the speed they wanted, so Lindsay recorded the song. Since it was only an acoustic guitar playing, the click in Lindsay's headphones was bleeding into the mic. To try and stop this, they duct-taped the headphones tight against Lindsay's head and then forced a wool stocking cap over it to muffle the sound. This mostly worked, but if you listen at the end of the song with headphones on as the guitar fades out, you can still hear the click faintly. And they were working on this for a while, and they said there was a few times he had to go to the bathroom. They would just unplug his headphones, but they would not take them off. Like, he had to hold the cord while he went. Literally, like, yeah, had to keep the headphones and hat on the entire time he did this part. <laughs> yeah, but I, I imagine it's still it's in there funny. a little bit. I, just, I imagine. Yeah, they didn't, they still didn't in even there. get it all out. Go figure. But they did get the song, and then Mick added his drum parts, and then Lindsay added more guitar parts. So this is kind of like the the um, inspiration coming from other things. So like when Mick added his parts, then Lindsay was like, oh, I can do this and this to it. John then added bass parts to the song, but John's parts and Mick's parts were taken out of the final mix. Once Lindsay wrote and sang the lyrics, this song became known as Never Going Back Again. All the parts in the song are Lindsay and Lindsay alone, except for the last vocal harmonies. That song was done for now. By then, they were reaching the end of March and had just two weeks left in record plan. Warner Brothers had scheduled them for a tour to continue to promote the White Album, which was steadily climbing the charts. In the time they had left, they decided that they were unhappy with the tempo in Dreams. They wanted Mick to redo his drum part, but they wanted to have a loop of a short section for it for the f- to further mis- make that mysterious sound that they had gotten from the initial record. And we're about to get into how they did this, but as I was reading this, it sounds like a joke. Like it sounds does not sound like a real thing that they did. Yeah, yeah, it's and a- it just they did it. It sounds totally ridiculous. <laughs> but this is what they did. So they had him play about a minute of the song, minute to a minute and a half, and then they duplicated it and made it into a 20-foot loop of physical tape that had to be taped and then run through the recorder to get that loop that would play for the entire uh, four minutes of the song. They took mic stands out of the studio and then brought them into the booth and then put reels on them so that they could spin freely as the tape went through it. They then had to keep the reel tight so it would run through the machine smoothly and on tempo. There were six people, including Ken, Richard, Chris, and Lindsay, putting all their weight on the mic stands to keep it in perfect tension. It worked perfectly, and they somehow they got this drum part that is heard in dreams that's all like they had to stand there the whole time and keep these perfectly taut without bumping them or moving them it sounds made up yeah they couldn't like (laughs) shift their weight around because it would lose tension on the tape and it would run slower or it would run faster or it would just break up the machine or whatever so like yeah they had to like physically work hard (laughs) to keep it perfectly aligned 
They then added more parts and then pulled an early version of Stevie's vocals that they liked for this song. They had to manually line up the parts since this was all analog, and they finished doing this at around 3 a.m. Uh, on top of that, these two, the two players they were using ran at different speeds, so they had to do it bit by bit and keep like remarking and realigning it to keep it from being off-tempo. God. Yeah, real pain in the ass. Like real we said, big pain. An- analog, analog, <laughs> analog is so difficult, but I mean, obviously it makes timeless albums. There's not many timeless albums that were made on uh, digital, yeah. but a lot were made on analog. Not to say that that's because of the analog, but it's definitely not not because of the analog. <laughs> it's, de- it's definitely... <laughs> There's no signal loss with analog, uh, man. No signal loss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the purest form, the the highest quality version of yes, the, the, the song. So, I don't know. Pretty Major. cool. Major but pain. huge pain in the ass, like we said. The rest of the time at Record Plant was spent on Strummermore and then working on a few of Stevie's songs called Planet of the Universe and doesn't anything last both of which were done during transcension sessions neither of these made the cut but you can hear them both on the super deluxe version of the album i think there's probably a good reason that neither of these made the cut (laughs) based on what we've been talking about this whole time about transcension yeah yeah i i I haven't even (laughs) listened to these i haven't even listened to these both of these songs but yeah i imagine that it's just incoherent ramblings in music form (laughs) yeah probably they're probably so out of their mind probably sucked (laughs) I mean, think about, like, how many songs outside of Edge of 17 by uh, Stevie Nicks do you really like? <laughs> Let's get real. How think good is that song? Well, it's, it's so good. How I mean, good is that don't song? get me wrong. Well, that song is like great. But, like, yeah, I, I'm perfectly content with what did make the cut. So thank heavens <laughs> these are on the super deluxe version. So the next day, they came in to mix all the songs again to see what they had and then to create backups of all the stuff they had done. They had a party where everyone hung out, and even Bob Welch stopped by, who, if you remember, was the guitarist for a long time and helped him get this pop sound that they had now. And then on April 10th, they packed up their stuff and got out of the record plant, and the band went on the road. And uh, this backing up these tracks is going to be such a huge thing. Yeah. Like, this is super important. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, analog can break down and deteriorate over time, and we will uh, get into that. But we're gonna see it almost ruin this entire. Album. It's very almost very horrifying how how easily. Literally, if you stand too close to the tape with like an overheated hot pocket, you could ruin a tape. <laughs> or a magnet. Or a magnet. Magnets yeah, yeah. So it. fragile. Like, like, it's crazy how fragile this stuff was and how often and how far it was handled and, tra- and, tra- and like, traveled and stuff like that. It's yep. pretty – it's honestly pretty scary. I would be so scared if I was live during this time. <laughs> oh, big time. Like, oh, I, don't, I don't like thinking about it. But that's why we have hard drives and digital music now. When we were supposed to record with Sean, he said he was going to do everything on tape. That'd be so cool. That'd be so cool. <laughs> Uh, climb would have been kind of cool. Uh, they planned to meet back up at Wally Hyder's, Ken's home studio, where he worked before he came to the record plant, to do more recording when the tour was over. When the band was done with the tour, they got into Wally's on May 15th. This would be their home studio for three months. They all toured the place and then got used to the workflow they had now forgotten being on the road. This was a drastic change for everyone, but more than anyone else, it was a huge change for Ken, 
who had gotten used to being pampered at um, at the record plant and now had to come back in where he was an employee and like people basically were just like nah go figure it out like you're the employee here (laughs) yeah exactly he was basically the chris of wally hiders now even though he was the engineer and producer for this album as well um everyone else when they got back from tour had bought in their own houses in la and so they were all fully split and they were now learning how to live basically on their own as just like total bandmates no relationships were happening around this time so um back to ken he was being treated poorly by the staff about like a fridge like they wanted a fridge in the booth so that they could store their beer in it and so ken called down and asked for a fridge and the the um the secretaries were like we're not going to get that for you like you have to get it yourself you have to bring it here whatever and so ken just told the studio that he quit and that he was going to be the full-time engineer for the band which they had requested so now he was working for the band at the studio which meant that he was going to get pampered like wholeheartedly yeah which is i kind of love this he was like on the phone with the secretaries and he was like you know if i was like employed by the band you would have this brought to us no problem right away and she was like yeah well you as it is you work here so and everyone in the band was like listening and they're like tell him you quit we like we want you to work for us and he was like okay (laughs) all right i quit yeah it's all yeah they're all like encouraging they're like quiet friend they're like tell him you quit (laughs) and then he was like and sure enough an hour later we had our fridge (laughs) Yeah, a, a delivered ball by Wally Hyder yeah. himself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, nonetheless. Yeah, they said Wally brought it up himself. Yeah, they were, yeah. So he was now completely, he could quit from Wally Hyder's, and he was now the full-time engineer for Fleetwood Mac, which is a awesome move for Pretty him, big move up. Truthfully. So that when they got into the studio, they worked on one of Stevie's songs called Smile At You, but Lindsay refused to work on it because Stevie's current boyfriend had helped produce it. And if a member refused to try on a song, it basically doomed the song and it was dead in the water. It did, however, make it onto their album in 2003. This is just another little example of if Lindsay isn't into something, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, so he. this is him kind of learning to control the band by what he did do, but also he could control the band by what he didn't do. He was what the he only guitarist in the band, and if he said he didn't want to do something, that song was done. There's yeah. no way it was going to survive. Like what else could they do? Yeah. So the first night of recording ended at 2 a.m. They then took the Sunday the day after off. They took this time to check out all of the famous bars like the Rainbow Bar and Grill and the Troubadour, places we've mentioned plenty of times, that would bring about the glam rock, Guns N' Roses, and Poison, and all of those places, all of those bands a decade later. Then Lindsay told the band to take some time off so that he could polish his parts. John and Mick took a week off, and Stevie and Christine took three weeks off. Richard celebrated the girls being gone by bringing in a bunch of Playboy magazines and just th- throwing them around the booth. It was, it was guy time. This is guy time. <laughs> they, well, thoroughly... they even were like, no ladies, like, we got to get this all done. Like, there's going to be no girls. We're just going to, the three of us, we're going to hammer out all these parts. Hell yeah. And that's how that yeah, goes. Just, that's how that just goes. four dudes, long hours in a booth, getting hot, getting sweaty, just, just... playing the guitar, <laughs> running the yeah. board. Well, 
Well, it didn't end up being the case. <laughs> so, well, you know. you know, how about that? It brought in the girls like the third day. So they thoroughly listened through all the songs and then uh, and listened to Lindsay's parts specifically. They then doubled up Lindsay's guitar parts where it felt right. They doubled it up so that it would have a bigger sound, which was literally Lindsay just playing his guitar parts exactly the same way he played it the first time, a second time, and then they would play them on top of each other, and there would be these subtle differences and things like that that would make it have a bigger sound they would add a variety of instruments including both electric and acoustic guitars a big song that they worked on during this time was strummer this was kind of Lindsay's baby and he wanted to focus heavily on it at this point it was very complicated with a lot of drums bass and even an organ Lindsay re-recorded the bass with a simple half note structure through the song he then added an acoustic part to accent some of the empty areas the acoustic part can be heard through the first 30 seconds pretty heavily and honestly through the whole song more heavily on the right side of the mix so if you listen to it with headphones on you'll hear it kind of heavily just playing randomly throughout the song Lindsay also wanted to add a constant background drum part just a constant 16th note roll which is just like so he put he wanted to put that through the entire song uh so they looked for a bunch of instruments tried out a bunch of things but they actually ended up landing on hitting the seat of a chair they mic'd it up and recorded Lindsay doing the roll so if you listen to the song you can hear it if you think you're hearing the bass part playing a 16th note uh, that's actually the chair being played austin on a parasite demo did you guys use a grocery cart yep i remember that oh sure did (laughs) that's kind of fun just did you hit it Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Put a, hooked a mic to it and just beat the hell out of I it. Say, I think it was during like a breakdown that issues a grocery <laughs> cart instead of a symbol. Yeah. Where did you get the grocery it cart? Was kinda... Yeah, what about it? Uh, <laughs> that, that was the only reason we used it. It just happened to be in the studio as a joke, so we just used it. <laughs> <laughs> just like yeah. all four of you guys just beating the shit out of it like they did I with the copier. I think someone had taken it from the local grocery store and chained it outside the studio for some reason, so they just brought it up in there. Oh, wonderful. Cool. Yep. If you want to hear there that, I'm not sure if you can hear it anywhere, but... No, I, yeah, you, you can't. can't get... Th- I. I have it on my well, phone. Well, you can Suck hear it, it on your phone, I guess. All right. Reach out to Ethan, and he won't <laughs> yeah, give he'll it send to you. It to yeah. you. Yeah. Ask me. If you ask me, I'll find it. <laughs> So they decided that Strummer was really starting to come together, and so they got out Gold Dust Woman. Lindsay got out a Dobro, which is a guitar that has a, it looks like an acoustic guitar with a big steel dome on the front of it to give it a more twangy sound. He used it to add parts throughout Gold Dust Woman. They, really, a lot of this was just adding little extra parts with the dobro and the guitars and anything just to like fill in the songs more and more. So th- at this point, they had the basses they wanted, and they were starting to overdub things, and a lot of it was Lindsay. The work that they were doing would come to a screeching halt when one day, Ken and Chris were working on cutting parts in the booth when Lindsay, his girlfriend, and Richard came barging into the studio. His girlfriend was crying hysterically. Apparently, Lindsay freaked out on his girlfriend and punched her in the face. Lindsay and Richard um, had to apologize. Like, Lindsay told Richard to apologize for him, and then Richard had to send her on her way. And Lindsay, Big man! Ooh, big, big man. What a, what a mature guy. <laughs> Lindsay even went as far as to say, as he didn't know why, she made him so mad. So he literally blamed her for him punching her in the face. 
I mean, and he's a very peaceful, rational guy, so clearly there is more to the story than we know. There's two sides. Yeah, <laughs> clearly. Definitely. I mean, victim blaming, that's not a thing. <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> that's just <laughs> such a shitty thing to do. Like, why did she make me do that? <sighs> yeah. Why did she make me slap her <sighs> yes, across the that's face? That's not good. They never <sighs> talked about this incident after it happened, but it was becoming very clear that Lindsay had a problem. They decided that that was going to be the end of the day, and they took the next day off, too. When they caught back, they got back out Strummer, and Lindsay did the vocals for that song now that Stevie was gone. They also wanted to redo the guitar part on brushes, but they realized the strings on the guitar only sounded good for about 30 minutes when they were fresh. So for the rest of the day, they recorded for 30 minutes, took 20 minutes to change out the strings, and then repeated that for 10 hours. God. God. Grueling. Nightmare. When the night was coming to a close, they told Lindsay to put down a rough vocal track. So when Lindsay started singing, he stopped and realized that they had recorded everything in the wrong key and it would have to be scrapped. Ten hours of work down the drain. He tried a couple times. Like, he started and he was like, no, 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 start again. I could do it. Like, realizing that there was no way. Yeah. Like they and they had just uh, done all of this song and, in the wrong key. And one thing that like you can do with analog and digital too is you can actually speed it up or slow it down, and that will change the tempo to get it into a key you want. But you can only do that subtly. They said that if you tried to slow it down into a key that he could sing, it sounded like it was like like drudging along. Or if you sped it up, it sounded like it was all like a bunch chip of mouse parts playing, like the chipmunks oh, wait, or yeah. whatever. So they yeah they had to scrap everything and see. That's the nice part about now you can just uh, change the frequency with digital yeah yeah you can do it all yeah i mean that would have been a five minute mistake in today's culture but now it was going to take an entire another day to record Mm. the parts (sighs) so after that they called it a night and then the next day john and mick returned from their vacation they listened to what they had recorded and they liked all the parts that Lindsay had added Lindsay then told them about the changes that he wanted to make, which was not an easy subject, as no one wanted to be told how to play their instruments. He told John about the more simple bass part that he wanted on Strummer, and he told Mick about these tom fills that he wanted, that he had kind of thought about and knew that he wanted in the song. So um, John was very hesitant to do what Lindsay wanted and very hesitant to change his parts, so Mick said that he would go first. Um, this, this right here is kind of the first instance of Lindsay taking control of the band and would be something that would plague them for literally the last rest of their time in the band. They should have just called it the uh, Lindsay Mac at this point. Cause he is just commandeering this jet and making his own. So I don't know. Yeah. He's, he dips his toes into it, but like he, he, he runs the band for a while. So Lindsay told Mick that he wanted a fast 16th note fill into the choruses. Um, He wanted it to be very raw and punk, but Mick could not seem to get it. So Lindsay asked if he could show him. Uh, He showed him, and then Mick said that he, what, what Lindsay had done was fine, so Lindsay should just record it himself. And that's exactly what he did. And this was the first time that Lindsay knew that he could play anyone's part. He knew that he could fill in for anyone. If you give a mouse a fucking cookie, man, I swear. Woo! Yeah, yeah. They, he. It's only gonna get worse. He from just here. got that inch, and he's about to take a mile. <laughs> he really, yeah, he really goes for it after this. So John tried his part, but was still having trouble getting it. So they tabled it and pulled brushes back out to fix their mistake. It took the rest of the day to get the acoustic and electric parts recorded again. 
Then the next day, Lindsay wanted to do it again, literally undo everything they had done and do it again. This time, Mick and Lindsay did it live in the studio. This proved to work. They worked on the song again for the rest of the day and then took Memorial Day weekend off. When they were back, Mick and John pulled Richard and Ken aside and told them that they were being made full co-producers on the album, which was huge for them. And truthfully, I don't know this for sure, but it probably made them multi-millionaires. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And Ken said that initially they had actually pulled him into the office and brought him in, sat him down, and was like, we're going to have to let you guys go. Yeah, they played a joke at first. Yeah, they joked them. They got them good. Pretty funny, guys. Pretty funny. And they're like, ah, just kidding. Do you guys want to be producers? Do you want the producer credit on the album? And obviously they took it because they're not stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think we'll pass. (laughs) We had a good, we had, we just had fun working with you guys. You know, honestly, I just get fulfillment from being here with you guys. I don't need the money. We don't even need it. Yeah. yeah, uh, Ken said at this point, like, they didn't specifically say, like, what being co-producers would actually give them like they basically like Ken they were just like you want to be co-producers and then they were but then like they weren't told what that actually meant like financially or anything like that it was just like they were already doing yeah it It sounded better why not take it but I mean I'm sure that they got some more royalty on the album and stuff like that so like yeah I think they got a higher percentage yeah huge huge move for them so on June 3rd Stevie and Christine came back they pulled Silver Springs back out to listen to it it sounded very empty um, in comparison to all the other songs that they had done that they had added parts to. So they decided they wanted to add more guitar parts to it with reverb and other effects on it. They spent so much time on this song, even though a lot of them from the beginning, other than Stevie, had a feeling it was not going to make the cut because it was the longest song by far. But they still put so much time into it, and I think that's way cool. Like They didn't let any song just be a basic song. Yeah, they wanted to completely finish every yeah. single song. And if you listen to the deluxe version of the album, you can listen to Silver Springs, and it is just another song on the album. Like, they finished it to fruition. Yeah. They knew it, it was still going to be great, but it just wasn't going to make the cut. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they, they worked on it. They all put their parts into it and stuff like that. I would recommend you listen to it because that's a, that's a hidden gem of Fleetwood Mac. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've never heard it. I would, it's very good. I would recommend it. They they the the album on the deluxe version is the cut down version that that Stevie and Ken work on. So it's originally seven yep. minutes long, and it, this one is like four and a half minutes, but it's still super good. So when they played Silver Springs, Ken also mic'd up Lindsay's guitar strings, not his guitar, his guitar strings. So when Lindsay plucked them, he they would actually get the actual sound of the string being struck, which made for a cool kind of glassy sound. They did so many small things to make this album what it was. Ken and Richard were brilliant engineers and brilliant producers who knew what they were doing and cared for every single song. Ken said that he didn't want a single single on the album he wanted the whole album to be completely full top to bottom and he and they succeeded they got that oh yeah perfectly they also added more acoustic parts to silver springs and then john wanted to re-record his bass parts on the song then after that Lindsay wanted to record harmonics as we spoke earlier those high frequency notes that you played stevie listened to where the track was and decided that she wanted to do some vocals on it that day the next day they got to do more of go your own way uh, to add parts to it. Then the band was on tour again to continue promoting the White Album, which continued to rise. They all took a few lavish vacations during this, but this time period was seriously nonstop work for them. 
really the only like big vacation they took was when Lindsay told them to leave the studio. Yeah. Like yeah. everything else was the like week you get for two John days and off. Mick and two for Christine and Stevie. Yeah. Like they were other, touring and recording. Exactly. Yeah. Other than that, it was like hard work in the studio. We're on tour. So while they were on this tour, they met in a studio in Miami from July 5th through the 11th to try and get some more work done. So they had a six-day break on tour, and they were like, well, you got to fill this time with studio time. Like, we got to get this album worked on more. And that's what they did. Um, so they, while they were here, they added some bass to Silver Springs, guitar to Go Your Own Way, and guitar and bass to Make Loving Fun. Lindsay was getting pretty manic while trying to get the perfect solo for the song. Like, he could not figure out the perfect solo for like, the, the, the song. Lindsay was telling Ken to record over his past solos so that because he knew that he could do them better. Ken argued it, but Lindsay demanded that he do it. Once he was done, he asked Ken to hear one of his older solos, and when Ken told him that it was gone because it was recorded over, Lindsay freaked out and ran into the booth and started to choke Ken. He choked him for quite some time before the band calmed him down and got him off of him. Lindsay apologized and then walked out, and that was the end of that day. And by all accounts, this was not like some misunderstanding between what Lindsay said and what Ken interpreted. This was like, Lindsay was like, no, just go over them, erase them, it's fine, we're not going to use them. And Ken was like, are you sure? We can like, we can save them and we can keep tracks in case you want to come back. And he was like, nope, just go over them. I think and it was even soon... more aggressive than that. I think it was like, I'll do better. I can do it better. And then Ken was yeah, like, you're pro- yeah, you're probably absolutely yeah. right. <sighs> like he, like Lindsay was angry that he was even questioning him. And then when he got it wrong, Lindsay started choking him. Yeah. Wow, what a stable person. <laughs> How about it? Yep. There you go. <laughs> so the Here next day and, real and, buck. and the best part is, is they never talked about this again. They were just like, <laughs> yeah, no, they let it. They just, they just started like, like, Kenny's just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. And Lindsay just acted like it never even happened. Literally yep. choked him out. And they were God. like, yeah, whatever. So that's kind of Lindsay's thing though. Like making Richard apologize to fucking, uh, the lady that his girlfriend. girlfriend yeah. For him. yeah. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, this isn't my fault. Like this is your fault for making me do that. What a, what a guy. Look yep. what you made me do. So the next day, they worked on Vocals on Dreams, and that marked the end of their time in Miami. They were set to meet again in August back at Hyder's to go over more parts. And then on August 4th, they did just that. Lindsay wanted to add something to go your own way, but didn't know what. He was messing around with his acoustic part when he played a funny accented bit. Ken and Richard told him to play that part again. He didn't, literally didn't even know what he played. He just played it, and Ken and Richard were like, hold on. Play that again. I want to hear that again. So they played it again, and they recorded it, and that's the part you hear at the very beginning of the song. I literally can't even... I think it's like... You're talking about Go Your Own Way? Yeah. Yeah, like it's kind of accented in like these offbeat times, like... The, Ken Ken said in the book, like, you, you get so close to your music, you don't even realize when you did something incredible. But, yeah. And that's why incredible. they needed Ken and Richard there. And that's so Ken and Richard caught that part and literally saved it from obscurity. Yeah. It could have just easily been gone forever. Yeah. So they after they got that part recorded, they ended right there for a few days because of a death in Ken's family. When they got back, they added the bass part to Strummer, now officially being called Secondhand News. I didn't catch it in the book, and I don't know, Austin, maybe you can tell me, but I don't know if John or Lindsay ended up recording this bass part. Uh, I think they said that John ended up doing it, but I don't know if it was, like, how much it was changed from what Lindsay had done. 
But I yeah. think they did say John was stubborn enough that he was still going to record it. I know that he did it, and I know that it still had like a little bit of complexity to it. But so I don't know if Lindsay, I didn't know if Lindsay went back over it or not. Yeah, I believe I'm that John sure. did it, but um, I, I could also see Lindsay just doing it at yeah. the 11th hour to cat, like sneak it in there or whatever. They then worked on Don't Stop and Think About It. The band kind of agreed that Think About It wasn't going anywhere, and they decided to abandon it and instead work on the drum parts in Don't Stop. They also decided to add a tack piano to the song, which is like a piano, but the strings are plucked instead of hit with a padded hammer. With that, more guitar and vocals from Lindsay and Christine uh, were added, and then the song was pretty much nearing completion. This was really the first song that they were like, this song is where you can almost put this song in the books. A few days later, Mickey Shapiro and Jerry Brown, the governor of California, came by to listen to their songs. They then booked a week at Daveland Studios in L.A. that had a huge grand piano that Christine wanted to try out. It also had like a wooden room that was really good for echo and reverb and stuff like that. They planned to use this piano for the parts in Don't Stop, Oh Daddy, and Make Love and Fun. The gov was definitely trying to get in Stevie's pants. (laughs) The governor also brought a girlfriend along, and John immediately started hitting yeah, his girlfriend. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he was just like, yeah, hey, "You can have this one. I'm gonna have this one." Like, really, why don't we do the a presidents for the uh, what the governor does in California? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It was just like, "You have this." One. Yeah, it, you know, it's fine. Welcome we, to the we, fucking seventies. We just yeah. do whatever we want. Seventies. <laughs> <laughs> so um so this big grand piano that they wanted to play on uh this is the piano that you hear when you hear this the low sustained note on the first beat of each phrase of oh daddy so it's just like boom and then yeah plays through the song so that's the big low note that you hear Lindsay wanted to add more guitar parts inspired by Christine's playing. They also did a lot of background vocals for various songs in this studio. I believe, and I could be wrong here, they may have done this at Wally's, but I believe that they did um, Stevie's vocal part for uh, Gold Dust Woman in here, like the end part where she's like screaming and it's very, very loud, like, that's all Stevie playing, and they said that when they were in the studio, whatever studio it was, they were play- like Stevie was in the studio screaming as loud as she could to get this part, and like Christine just looked at Ken and was like, "I told you she was a witch." <laughs> like it was, Aww. it's so. And if you go back and listen, it's so scary. Like her, her screams are so scary in the song. Piercing. But, yeah, it really adds a pretty cool part to it. So after they were done here at Davelin, uh, they went back out on tour. While on tour, the White Album hit number one on September 1st, 1976. This was a huge deal for them, but added a lot more pressure on when their follow-up album would be done because now the White Album had nowhere to go but down. And we saw the same pressure with GNR, but of these two, there's definitely a winner. <laughs> It's not GNR. Thank you. Yes, one of them. One of them. Uh, yeah, you know. You know. Yep, one was bad. <laughs> so the songs were getting. <laughs> so the songs were getting close, but they knew that they still needed to work on Gold Dust Woman, Keep Me There, and Silver Springs. So after the tour, they jumped back into the studio to keep working. They first worked on Silver Springs, which was still over seven minutes long. They knew the song had to be shortened or it would have to be cut. 
So Stevie and Ken spent an afternoon working to cut out parts of the song. Stevie was heartbroken by this, but when she when it was explained to her that if it was kept the same length and cut from the album, another song would have to be taken off, and she would lose a percentage of the producing credit and lose out on money. And this was a, a pretty common thing for Stevie. She was so invested in her lyrics and her melodies that anything being touched or removed like broke her heart like she would get like yeah like really offended if you asked to remove something from yes right until you told her that she won't get as much money if she does (laughs) as soon as 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 the greenery (laughs) she recovered she recovered (laughs) yeah they i think a little bit different then but i I think ken said in the book like as soon as it was explained to her he said she straightened up like a soldier and we got right through it (laughs) that's what it was (laughs) you start Uh, talking in dollar signs and she understands that, that moves that moves mountains uh, but in the end, I'm not. I'm sure that you may not have ever heard Silver Springs before, as Ethan did not. It got cut anyway because it did not flow with the album. But it would be used on the B-side of the Go Your Own Way single. And, as I said, you can hear it on the deluxe version of the album. While Stevie was out one day, Lindsay showed the band another one of Stevie's songs to replace Silver Springs called I Don't Want to Know. They cut a rough track of the song in about 90 minutes, getting the master in nine takes. They got the whole song down, minus Stevie's tracks, in one day. And when Stevie came back, they showed her this new song, and Mick had to break the news that Silver Springs was going to be cut. Stevie was resentful that this had happened, but she agreed to move forward on I Don't Want to Know. It was around this time that John suggested a new title for the album. He was talking about how much the press was talking about them, so he said that the album should be called Rumors to play into the rumors and lies being spread. Everyone loved it, and that was that. They went with the European spelling of rumors, adding the U as a tribute to their homeland. A few days later, on September 27th, they were listening to the mixes when they noticed that everything was sounding really weak and flat. No matter how much they cranked it and tuned to it, they couldn't figure out what was going on. Ken looked at the tapes and saw that there was black residue all over the machine, a sign that the tapes were dying from being used so much. Bingo! Here we go. Houston, we have a fucking problem. Yeah, big problem. problem. (laughs) Huge problem. (laughs) Like, literally detrimental problem. Like, Like, could kill an album. Yeah, literally put it dead in the water. Luckily, they had backups of all the basic parts recorded during the Sausalito sessions. Ken realized you could still pull the new parts off the dying tapes onto these masters, but it would have to be done manually. So he called another studio who specialized in this sort of thing and had a uh, machine called like a, a, a multi-variable oscillator or something like that. I don't remember what it was called. Uh, and they had the expertise to do this, so he made an appointment for the very next day. The band was, like, horrified that they were going to lose everything. Honestly, everyone was. Yeah, like, that's scary as shit. Yeah, like, the, the stuff they've been working work. on. It's the yeah. brink of destruction. For, yeah, for nine months they'd worked on this, and now it was like, uh, what's happening? And then to hear, yeah, these tapes are dying. Like, we need to do something about it. <sighs> so scary. It's like being diagnosed with terminal cancer. Oh, yeah, yeah it's basically the same. Being it's diagnosed with not terminal cancer because they fix it. Oh. Bingo. So the next day, they okay. brought the tapes into this new studio and had to manually line up the songs and run them perfectly in time, making sure that everything was on beat. 
Uh, another guy did this, and Ken said he couldn't remember the guy's name, which is so sad because he saved rumors. I just want – i That's pretty sad. The uncredited anonymous guy. He does say, please let me know. Please let me know. I want to say as well, please let us know who you are because you saved if you one hear of the this, most just influential Just tell us. Yeah. We'll listen to you. If you somehow listen to us before you listen to that book – Please let us know. I'm um, sure you're probably dead by now, but <laughs> if nobody knew who you were after this, you're probably dead. <laughs> um, so this guy, this mysterious guy, had to listen to one tape in one side of his headphones and then another tape in the other side of his headphones and manually speed up and slow down the machines in time to keep them perfectly in time and on rhythm. And he had to do this for every single song throughout the whole album. Uh, and then this all recorded to a new master tape. So this new master tape would have all these added parts that were being pulled off the dying tape. Um, it's, it's basically the same as trying to start two songs at the exact same time on two computers, which I'm sure we have all tried to do. And then you get it like half a second off and it sounds horrible. It's doing that, but for 12 songs over and over again. This process took 18 hours, but in the end they got it and they saved the rumors tapes. And if this didn't work, like, if this one thing had not worked, we would see such a different chunk of history. Uh, yeah. I'm sure we not, would yeah. not be talking about this right now. No, yeah. That no. We would – hardly anyone would know who they were, I feel like. Yeah. yeah. I think they would just You'd, fall into Like, they would have been that band that had a couple number one hits. I, say we, I mean, we mentioned it earlier, but without the sophomore album to follow up a big hit album, you, you're pretty much done. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yep, so this mysterious guy saved the album. So crazy. I hope you're okay, man. Yeah, they would have lost everything nine months into recording. Okay. I don't like it. Uh, but with these new masters, they got back into the studio. They were feeling confident once again. Lindsay wanted to add more guitar parts to I Don't Want to Know, and Christine wanted to add organ to the doomed Silver Springs. And again, I love this. Like At this point, they knew it wasn't on the album, but they still knew it was a great song and wanted to keep adding to it. Yeah, and I think that they kind of decided around this time that it was going to be used on the single for um, Go Your Own Way, so they knew that they had to finish it, but it was still cool that they were like, I believe in this song. We are going to finish this song. Very cool. Uh, They added more guitar parts where it was needed, and then some vocals here, a piano there, and just basically sprinkles on the cupcake. Uh, In early November, they finished up in Hyder's studio. They planned to get into the record plant, but this time in L.A., not Sausalito. Around this time, they also met up with Herbie Worthington, the photographer who did their album shoot for the White Album, to do the cover for this album. So some people wanted to have uh, the have all the members on the cover, and then some wanted to have it be more artsy. The artsy people won out, and the photo that was chosen showed Mick in a white button-up and, white and black vest with his foot on a stool with a pair of wooden balls hanging between his legs. Apparently a normal form. Ethan, did you see it when you watched it? Yeah, he, he wears balls on his legs when he performs live. It's kind of fun. Yep, he has wooden balls that hang between his legs. Yep. Uh, beside him. guy. Yeah, God. and then he's holding a crystal ball in his hand. It's actually the, the same crystal ball that was on the White Album that um, was being flown above John McVie's head. Um, beside him is Stevie in her normal Rhiannon flowing shawl that she became known for. With ballet slippers on, she was standing uh, looking like a ballerina, looking at the crystal ball in Mick's hand. And then the Fleetwood Mac and Rumors that is written on the album cover was actually handwritten, uh, hand-drawn by Larry Vigon. And one thing that Herbie said, which is 
kind of cool. Who knows if it's true or not. But he said there was, they took, you know, so many pictures and everyone was so divided. But he said that when he went through them, he knew the picture it was going to be and got it, like, enhanced and everything before anyone had even picked on it. Yeah, he. I mean, it's literally world famous. Yeah. Like He said he knew exactly which one it would be, got it, like, ready to be used for an album cover before they even settled. And, you know, Herbie could be blowing smoke, but... I'm sure he was blowing smoke, too. He could he could have been telling the truth. <laughs> um, and then if you yeah if you actually look at the Making Rumors album, you can actually find another photo from that session. The cover of Making Rumors is another photo from yep. that session. So mm-hmm. if you need another picture to look at, uh, that that's it's just a different photo from the exact same session. So it looks just like it, but it's different. It's a little different. So when they got to the record plant, L.A., uh, Lindsay had new ideas for Keep Me There, the song that they had worked on at the very beginning of their time recording. He wanted to change the first half completely, but leave the second half. They decided to make the verses very sparse, so Mick got out a huge, I think it was like a 28-inch kick drum, and Lindsay got out the dobro. They focused on harmonies during the verses with a simple 4-4 kick on the floor, and then uh, the dobro playing and little background parts, and then a little background piano, and electric to pack up the vocals. Then a full band would come in during the choruses. It was a lot more full and a lot more heavy. Stevie had some lyrics that she tried out that everyone liked. And with that, the name was changed from Keep Me There to The Chain. There from it the is. Icon- Yep. That's the one. How about it? How about it, guys? We waited the whole episode to hear. But <laughs> yep. This is, how this, this is how the chain was made. Whether that's lackluster to you it's or It's funny cool. how they start with that song. <laughs> they start with that song when they play. Oh, but, man, so, I love it. So fucking good. So, um, Lin- <sighs> so from the iconic bass part on, the song actually is Keep Me There. That's actually all from Keep Me There, which you can hear on the Super Deluxe version. Then the first half is the chain. So they took two songs and just redesigned it into one song. Lindsay took the picking part from one of Buckingham Nick's songs called Lola My Love um, to, to put onto the, the first part of the chain. This is the only song on the album that is credited as being written by all the members of the band. It was the first song that they had worked on when they arrived in Sausalito 11 months ago, and it would be the last song they recorded in L.A., also at the record plant. And I think this is a huge part of why this is, I would say this is their biggest song. I like the, think I the, agree with you. I think, especially as a group, yeah, it's the one that everyone had their brains on. Which I mean, yeah. they all contributed to all of them in some but, way or another. But yeah, literally, I mean, to get the pub, to get the writing credit to all of them, uh, they obviously had to have a huge part in this. They then had two weeks after they got this song kind of down. They then had two weeks to polish the songs and choose the running order for the album. They all worked on different orders, but none of them got it right. It was a lot of like, do you want all the slow songs in one part? Do you want all the fast songs in one part? Do you want it just in alphabetical order? Things like that. Uh, But the person who actually figured it out was Judy Wong, the band's secretary. She walked into the booth when they were all working on it, sat down, and then quickly hand-wrote a list and then handed it to them. Um, The way Ken describes it was a little different. Basically, she came in and was like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, working on the uh, running order for this album. And she's like... Oh, I want to take a try, and they're just like, "Hey, sure, whatever, fine, just fine. shut up, just go do it, just be quiet." <laughs> and then it ended up being the one, that literally, <laughs> that yeah, the, ended the, up being the, the the album, the exact order, yeah. 
So, if you've never heard the album before, or if you want to know, let's go through it. It starts. Thanks, Judy. <laughs> Thank you, Judy Wong. Um, actually, fun fact about Judy Wong: is she was actually um, a roommate to Peter or to Jenny, and uh, I cannot remember Jenny's twin sister's name. The Boyd, the Boyd sister, Patty, Patty Boyd. Patty. Uh, she was actually their roommate, and that's kind of how they met. Uh, that's how she met Fleetwood Mac and started working oh. for her. Kind of cool. Uh, so cool. the album starts with secondhand news, then dreams, never going back again, don't stop, go your own way, and then Songbird rounded out side one. Side two started with the chain, then you make loving fun, I don't want to know, oh daddy, then gold dust woman. It was perfect. It fit each side's 22-minute maximum runtime, and it flowed well. It was a perfect mix of like slow songs, then fast songs, and then the chain starting second side two with its really sparse guitar, and side one being ended with Songbird, like that soft piano. It was, it was perfect. Um, so Ken cut the tapes in that order, and with beers and various, various smokables in hand, they listened to, for the first time, rumors in the correct order. It was magic, and no one spoke the entire time. They then had two weeks left to get the masters before they were done in the record plan. They added bells to dreams, or like a a xylophone, vibraphone to dreams, vocals and guitars to various songs, and then Lindsay finally did the solo that was troubling him on Go Your Own Way. So he got that solo in literally the 11th hour for Go Your Own Way. It plays at the end of the song. Um, They also put harpsichord on Gold Dust Woman, actually played by Mick, who had no idea how to play piano. I think the solo in Go Your Own Way, for me personally, is probably the most iconic guitar solo ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and he got that so late. Oh, it was literally so plaguing him for the entire time that he was tra- working on this album, and he got it right at the end. Like, it's just like, all right, I we're in it. the clear now, and so that's what—that's the boost that he needed. Um, so uh, with Mick playing this harpsichord, not knowing how to play, they actually taped off all the notes that he shouldn't play, and uh, taped the notes that he should play it as different color. So they basically just let him hit the notes that he wanted to in time with the song, and all the notes that he could hit. Were, would sound completely fine with the song. So they just let him do his thing in the studio. I think he got pretty coked up and just like played the song as he wanted to. They also brought in sheets of glass that Mick would shatter that would be added to Gold Dust Woman. Mick stood on a ladder and smashed the glass with a hammer. It took four hours to get these songs. They like smashed it and then they took the shattered glass and like rained it down essentially to get that raining sound that you hear. Then Stevie added more vocals to the song, and that was the last thing that they recorded for the album. They were then told to get a radio mix ready for Go Your Own Way, so they mixed this at Hyder's. Then, on December 1st, they met at Producers Workshop in L.A. to mix the album. And this was almost as important as recording. This is where they would adjust the raw tracks in real time to get the mix to make it sound great. This meant memorizing the songs one by one and moving the faders on the board in time to get the instruments to come to the front of the sound and then to hide them back in the mix. And Ken, Richard, and people from the band were all involved with this. So when you listen uh, to the album and you hear an instrument kind of come up for a solo or to fade back in, that was a person physically doing that with a fader to feature that. Yeah, yeah. And they did this for six weeks. So they literally had to memorize every single song and like, all right, uh, Lindsay, you're gonna move up this fader 
to you know like zero decibels at that at the beginning of the guitar solo and you're going to move it back and and then rich you're going to do your part like it was memorized it was they, they ken called it like a dance like they were doing a dance on the board Jesus. so it was a lot of listens through of the song to get what they wanted and then rehearsing the moves as they went through the songs and then finally doing it for real recording it to a new tape which would be the ultimate master on january 4th 1977 the album was fully mixed and bounced down to one reel they had a listening party that night for friends and execs at Warner Brothers, and one of the execs pulled them aside and told them that they didn't hear any hits on the album. Jokes <laughs> on you, you fat dumb shit. <laughs> you stupid fat Douche. bitch. You uh, fat bald piece of shit. Dumbass. And they said that this was like pretty yeah. disheartening for him that this like fat they, sausage that this guy bald didn't asshole. Say. But to contrast that, through its time, every single song on the album would see radio play. Every single song. And this was the first time God. in history that that had ever happened, to get all 11 songs on the radio. Yeah, why don't you take that, you freaking mouth-breathing, oh big-pupiled, poor-nosed, poor Sasha hairy-assed little bitch. Oh fucking God. big old thumb sitting on ass. <laughs> fucking... Oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, he bald ass, <laughs> fucking glasses wearing, Couldn't. fucking suit wearing, fucking nice shoes having. Kind of complimenting him all of a sudden. Yeah, it's getting yeah, good now. <laughs> going in, I was going in the nice weird. car Rich. driving, Rich. hot wife having. You fucking fucking BMW having, fucking fucking <laughs> fucking private airplane owning. You huge owning. dick douchebag. Fucking <laughs> fucking ripped ass, fucking douche. All right. Oh, All right, man. nice work, nice work. Yeah, that guy was, couldn't be more wrong. Could Got not him. be more wrong. <laughs> so in mid-January, the mixed reel was taken to be mastered over the next five days. This process was physically recording the reel through a machine that physically cut the grooves into the vinyl. That would be the master vinyl. This was then sent to a plant where it was dipped in silver, and that was the master that would be copied hundreds of thousands of times. And the album already had so much buzz that they had to cut 146 of these because um, they were going to be sent all over the world, so it would be a lot easier for people to produce. They were all shipped off, and the band was officially done with rumors when this was done. And then a few weeks later, on February 4th, 1977, over one year after they started recording... Rumors was released. It immediately shot to the chop of the charts, staying there for a full 31 weeks. In the UK, it stayed in the top 100 for 800 weeks. That is over 10 years. To date, it has sold more than 45 million copies and has gone double diamond. Diamond means 20 million copies were sold, and it went double diamond. On average, it has gone platinum every year since it was released, 42 years ago. Oh my god. It god. is the seventh highest selling album of all time. And back in 1977, it led to extravagant tours, six more albums, marriages and divorces, and multiple split ups and reunions from the band, which we will get to on the next episode of On in Five. We did it. Woo! We did it, boys. We did it. We made that it. This is the how first you make time, an album. This is the first time we've broken down an album, like <sighs> step by step, the process of it. So, I mean, if anyone's listening, give tell us what you think, and we'll keep doing it, or we won't. Do we? 
Do we really want to say we? Can can we just say Tony? <laughs> well, yeah. So, yeah. Someone will read it. Tony will read it. And then he'll oh tell God. us. And then six or seven hours later or a couple days later, we'll get back to him. I cannot wait. We'll <laughs> I cannot wait to do this with more albums. This was honestly so fucking fun. To do, I would like, love to do this. To read this. Or like something. To, yeah, get to dive into I loved I learning doing. stuff. Yeah. Oh, it was so cool. So, yes, we will get to the aftermath of Rumors and what it was like to be the biggest band in the world for them because that's exactly what they were and how they dealt with it after dealing with their relationships. Pretty poorly. Pretty poorly. Not well. Uh, (laughs) So, yes, we will get to that next time. For now, we're going to wrap this up quick because, man, we've been doing this for a while. So if you want to find us on anything, uh, you could find us on at we're on in five that's every social media page uh w-e-r-e on in five go follow us go like us go do whatever you need to comment and have fun with it um we also have a website uh we're on in five.com you can find everywhere you want to listen to us all the social media pages kind of get to know us a little bit more if you want to uh, find me on social media anton i am on twitter and instagram at anton a-n-t-o-n is on in five if you want to go check out ethan you can do that. On Twitter, I'm Ethan Bonin, B-O-N-I-N. And on Instagram, I'm Bones for Bonin, spelled the same. Uh, also, as always, like I always say, just just email us. Just just tell us what you think about us. Email us at weareonin5 at gmail.com. So we'll, we'll talk to you. We like talking to Love you guys. Love talking to you. And then I, if you want to yeah. find Austin We don't anywhere, mind talking to you. <laughs> Austin, what, uh, what, you got? what do you got, man? <laughs> Uh, If you want to find me anywhere, I'm on Twitter. My last name is Thomas, so my Twitter handle is Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, except instead of A-S, it's A-A-A, that's three A's, and then instead of S as in Sunday, it's F as in Frank, so it's my last name, Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S. Why couldn't you do Friday? I'm trying to do this as hard as I can. It's it's like your last name, but it's it's not your last name. How many A's? Six. How many uh, six? I'm on Got Instagram <laughs> as Austin underscore Thomas 09. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. where I'm at. That's I'm on where Facebook you're at. as my name. So did you make your Instagram when you graduated high school or? Oh, it's like a, you know, no. probably two years after. <laughs> okay. So the answer is, really, is no. You're, you're it was just easy for me to remember. Um, Austin Good. also is the vocalist in a band. So if you want to hear him not speak gently the way that he does in this podcast, but let, rather yell violently, why don't you tell and, him about that? Yeah, oh, man. That. I went and watched him. Was it last weekend or was it no? Two it was two weekends, weekends ago. ago. Two. Oh man, I highly recommend. He, very they, good, Austin. They put on a super fun show. All of them it are was super very talented. Good. It was a really good time. Me, me I and don't Austin remember had, it very well, but I mean, I do me and Austin. Fun. Oh, me and Austin had a good time. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> it was so much fun. Good party. Real good time. <laughs> Also, um, this is not even part of it, but I just want to shout out, send a shout out to uh, Austin's guitarist, Dan. Thank you yeah, for Dan's listening awesome. and like, I love Dan. Genuinely he was great. Believing in us. That's really awesome. That's awesome. And you're a really good guitarist. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Love you. 
So the other thing that we want to do on this is we want to drink beer. We've been drinking beer this whole episode um, to in hopes to get free beer from people who want to try out new beers and uh, need some hamsters and guinea pigs for uh, trying it. We will be happy to do that. So if you have any beers you if want to send not, us. Even if it's not FDA approved. Yeah, we actually, we if encourage not it. it's got hops and barley and send it. We actually encourage. I got, I got beer at home. I can give it to you. Yeah. Wow. Wow. If, all we, if we just have to drink Ethan's beer, we've done something wrong. So please send us beer. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Tony's tried it. It's not good it's, it's beer. not good it's beer. it is technically not good so um it's so beer. the beer that i am drinking this episode is from clown shoes brewery which i think is out of vermont uh yeah out of vermont clown shoes brewery uh pretty fun name the beer that i'm drinking is called bubble farm it's an ipa very good from the website it says the intergalactic league of farmers waits for no man even with a crop as delicate as bubbles elegant crops of course and no matter the trouble of harvesting them in this always worthwhile to see these beauties shine light in color with a touch of haze the american ipa maintains an approachable medium body without sacrificing any of the full aroma and flavor of copious dry hopping and sanctions of simcoe azaka and idaho seven hops very very good i would recommend trying it uh the label on it is super cool i that's the first time i've ever talked about a label being cool for a beer it's really good really fun label please go check it out ethan no austin what are you drinking i am drinking and i apologize to everyone out there that's gonna be heartbroken i think i've done this one before uh confluence capital gold uh if you are you know uh classic Coors man or Miller High Life man like myself and just like a nice gold lager. This is like a, this is like you take your $3 Coors, bump it up to like a $5 nice one, mm-hmm. but it's like actually good. That's this guy. Yeah. It, yeah. It's essentially... Confluence Capital Gold. It's essentially like um, making fun of people in a Saturn Ion in your Ford Focus. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah that's a good, that's a good analogy. <laughs> wow. Good yeah, oh I like that. man, as you drive by in your Kia Soul. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's a good beer. I, yeah, it's it's very good. Ethan, what about you, man? Good. All right, so I did something a little bit unorthodox for what I usually do. You know, I found myself in Wisconsin this past weekend. I was. I it was up there. Can only be one thing. Oh, there's only yeah. one thing you can do while you're in Wisconsin. Give it to you me. I'm ready get to hear it. New Glarus <laughs> Brewing Company Spotted Cow. Oh, oh can we all God. agree that Ethan drank the best beer oh, this yeah. episode? Sorry to yeah, everyone else, I but did. Spotted Cow is. So I have good. no so opinions good. on Wisconsin as a state, other than I hate them only for keep being so restrictive yeah. on their beers. Yeah. caging it. Spotted in. Yeah. Cow. Dude, oh, it's. Yes. I'm not gonna lie, man. It went. These six cans went down so easy. Yeah, so good. So <laughs> oh good. god. So get yourself good. a can of. Go go to Wisconsin. Get yourself a can of spotted cow. Get yep, get yep. get a go twelve see, pack. Oh, god. Go see the cowboys. Go see all the cheese they got up there. Go see the orchards. And why don't you and go, go see the hills? Some, don't see the cowboys because you'd have to go to Texas to do that. But you can go oh, see the Packers. If you think you. If you think you're going up north to Wisconsin and go see the Cowboys, oh, you're solely mistaken. <laughs> you're 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 getting confused. You're getting the spotted cow, not the cowboy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, spotted cow is super spotted good. Spotted cow is so super you, good. Cowboys you, don't play. Wisconsin, go to Wisconsin. Wisconsin please go try spotted don't. cow. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> we want to be sent free beer, and we're just thoroughly promoting spotted cow. Please. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> New Glarus, please. Fuck send all me the beer. other ones we it's... talked about. New well, so, <laughs> I don't mean that. It is, it is so good. Okay. Um, so to wrap it up, 
Please like us and review us on iTunes or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. The more that you like and review us, the more uh, visible we are to other people. So the more people will listen to us and the more often we can do this kind of thing. We all want to do this as a full-time job in the future. So like, please, we are more than willing to do this more often if we're able to. But the only way we're going to be more able to is if you guys try to spread the message that we're doing to the world. So please I'm going to say as three that. guys doing something that only thrives or or doesn't thrive based on people listening, we would love it if you listen. Please. Yeah, if you, you listening is wonderful. Listen. <laughs> oh, and also uh thanks to I'm pretty sure like four guys in my class now are listening, so I'd like to thank them again. <sighs> Perfect. Keep spreading it around. Them. Yep. I got all my coworkers Thanks, listening. Guys. I think Austin's got his coworkers listening. Ethan's got his classmates listening. <sighs> It starts. It starts from the bottom, boys. Got you got to build that base to My build boys. it up, and that's where we're at we're right playing now. Playing COD. So, yes. We're playing COD Mobile on PC. <laughs> My boys. <laughs> so if you want to keep uh, listening to us, please like us, review us, rate us, everything like that. Do all that. We're gonna leave you for now. Um, seriously, go listen to Rumors after this with this new found understanding of how the album was made because it is so much more fascinating when you know where the parts came from and kind of the turmoil that went into making this album. Yep. And that's where we're going to leave it. Before you do that, I just want to tell everyone, hey, behave yourselves, do better, be better, do more, go out there, be the best self you can be. But I'm also going to say, if you just can't drag yourself through the day, if everything just seems too much, reach out. Just don't do anything. Reach out. Just sit in your fucking bed. Who Ask cares? Ask someone Who for cares? help. If you just get... don't. No, don't do that. Just pout about or, it. If you need a day to watch Netflix stay. and just be sad, find, please do. Find someone that'll listen to you. Just reach out tell, to one person. Tell, no one's going to listen to you. Tell just your work, don't talk to anybody. Tell, tell your work you're stay taking in a your sick house. day. You tell don't someone. have to talk to them. Tell anyone. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Loving you is the right thing.